Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, testing one, two, three. David, are you there? Yes, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear, brother. How are you today? Happy New Year. Indeed. Thank you. What's your name? My name is, uh, well, I go by Frater RC. Um, <clears throat> but uh, um, it was the uh, Oasis Foundation uh, Retreat Center, which has been there since 74, created by Lorian Binier. She was a, a fan of the goddess Isis and friends with Anton Xander LaVey, of all people, in San Francisco in the 60s and 50s. She was a beatnik and created this huge 10-acre property uh, dedicated to the goddess worship. And then it merged with the Union Temple of Isis, founded by Arissa Victor, who was the protege of the protege of Paul Foster Case and the builders of the Adytum. And then mm-hmm. it merged with the Fellowship of Isis, then Lady Olivia, out of Clonagall Castle, Ireland, and formed this network so i was teaching uh, hermeticism and doing you know teaching basic ritual work and history uh back to the italian renaissance and that sort of thing weekly at classes and helping with the animals and all these other things that they were doing there it was a great experience i did all the bota work in my youth a long long time ago and visited uh the la temple um i think in like 1991 and nice, yeah. And, I used to drive um, by it a lot when I was uh, part of the Golden Dawn in Los Angeles in the 90s. Yeah, I, I have uh, a lot of respect for uh, Paul Foster Case and his work. Um, I definitely have a lot of um, opinions on the totality of what happened in that lineage, but yeah. Paul Case's work in particular, <laughs> the original Paul Case work, I think, is really, truly excellent because unlike a lot of the other Golden Dawn offshoots, his tendency towards ecstatic devotion was always just under the surface. Mm. And his uh, his style of mysticism had an, an apophatic aspect to it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about uh, the Golden Dawn. A lot of people knock it, but I remember when I decided to join, I hummed and hawed about it for a few years before I bit the bullet um, in 96. 
but I, what I realized was like, look, this is a, it, it's at least I realized it was a complete system for better or for worse. And that going through it probably would do me more good than harm. And I was right. You know, it did some harm, of course. Um, <laughs> but that wasn't because of the system. That was just, you know, human beings, right? <laughs> yeah, we probably uh, we probably know quite a few of the same people. We talked before, you said. On my uh my on my my real name uh Facebook channel, we we chatted here and there back and forth uh once I think just a little bit. Um I think I can't quite recall exactly and you know, but yeah, no, I'm really glad to be talking to you now. So the idea is that this is a little preamble to get us prepared for a full podcast and build some excitement among listeners, is that correct? Well, if we're talking and we get into a point in the conversation that you want to start recording, feel free to do so. I'm fine with that. Oh, it's um, actually, I, it actually starts recording right away. And uh, people are sort of used, to, people sometimes, the guests are a little surprised that I, I, I record the preamble. Um, and that's just because I, I've always told people like, look, I wish I could do these things live. I wish ever, my podcast was entirely live and people could listen to it live streamed on in real time but that's not an option. So I try to make it as close to that as possible and have built a slight reputation for, for not editing stuff out or, uh, you know, packaging it in a, in a censored way. And people, and people respond to that quite well. Like I'm the only one who does that actually. So people seem to, to like that. It seems so if that works for you, I'll just share what we talk about now for people and they can get excited for a full podcast. Yeah, let, let's see what it comes out being like. And if you think it's um, cohesive, then by all means, you definitely have my permission to do that. You could ask me anything you want. I've got a very odd background. I don't really have a problem talking about it. I got projects going. I've got previous projects to talk about. Um, really, the um, thing that's going to do people the most good is a discussion of the view that I hold, which is rather um, eccentric and different than the usual view of hermeticism. When all, right, the term, all the best her views are eccentric, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I, I mean eccentric to conventional occultism. I'm, I'm aware. I'm, I've, I've, heard, I've heard some whisperings that you are, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, oh, what is the word? Oh damn! I can't. It's escaping me. Um, and and to, damn, I forget. You're you're yes. You're outside the the norm mainstream of thinking on these things. But I'm not sure where you do diverge from mainstream quote unquote mainstream occult thinking or kabbalistic thinking or spiritual thinking. Maybe you could just give me a bit of an idea of how you see yourself as departing from that. Okay. The main point that would come up before anything else would be that the view that I hold is a non-eminationist view, meaning oh, thank that... thank God. <laughs> about, about fucking time, man. <laughs> meaning that the methodologies aside, and we could get into a discussion about methodology and practice. That's, that's literally like what I write about, which uh, my background's in hermeneutics and semiotics academically. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> enough said, right? <laughs> well, um, let's start with that. Um, from the view that we can understand intellectually proceeds 
uh, practice methodologies. So if you understand the basic view intellectually, what follows from that um, through feeling tone resonances and through the devotional aspect and ultimately through the mystical aspect and the exploration involved there, it all relies on a certain type of intellectual understanding. Although what I do is certainly not philosophy, it has to start out philosophically so people understand what I mean by a view. And the view pertains to the ground of all phenomena. And my non-emanationist take on the ground of all phenomena is that nothing steps down or diminishes or reduces itself in the hierarchy of levels that are displayed as the worlds and the modes of knowing those worlds. For example, you really have an ontological and epistemological way of dealing with reality as a human being. In other words, you have what knows and modes of knowing and what is known, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the modes of knowing are predicated in conventional terms on the reification of a subject, a subject perceiver, and what is known is posited on realms of objects. And those realms of objects are calibrated in terms of a ladder system that for the most part in Kabbalah and in particular Hermetic Kabbalah is a, a set of steps that are in order of subtlety based on the reification of that subtlety meaning that the more gross the reification is, the lower it is in the system, the more subtle the reification is, the higher it is in the system. However, everything is ultimately reified as real objects in a real realm perceived by a real perceiver. Mm -hmm. So if you hold a non-emanationist view, you're starting out by looking at this spectrum of possibilities, both in terms of what knows and what is known, with a common denominator. And that common denominator is completely open, self-illuminating, and cannot be grasped or reduced or reified in any tangible way. Because if you could reify the one, the one common denominator, you'd have a monist system. Mm. So not only is it non-emanationist in relation to the hierarchy, it's not a monistic system either. It's something radically different from that. And when you look at, for example, the various views in ancient Hermeticism, and the Corpus Hermeticum doesn't posit one view, it posits several views, because it's not a real book, it's just a collection of fragments. <laughs> Amen. Right. Uh, I think, you know, we know enough about Ficino and uh, what happened in the Renaissance to, to not buy the fact that this is, you know, a book. As a matter of fact, some of the texts in the Corpus Ficino, Hermeticum. Ficino's right? mistranslation aside. <laughs> yeah, and also the assumption of what he thought that it was. Yes, exactly. Well, that's, yeah, it's very much stemmed from that key mistranslation of, I mean, for those listeners who don't realize, uh, he basically translated it to say um, that the highest form of knowledge and knowing was something that could be achieved successively but the actual translation later that was accurately done by Lazarelli, I believe, I think it was Lazarelli, was that the, what the text actually said was that the highest form of knowledge was knowledge that had to surpass itself going from a cataphasis into an apophasis. 
Yeah, and that's where you get the mistake corrected um, by the followers of Plotinus when they follow that right. system. Yeah, there's um, such a worship of Plato and Plotinus and emanationism. Um, and I grew up being taught thinking that that was the way as well. But that was before I read Aristotle. That was before I read Heidegger and really took a, seriously the writings of people like Meister Eckhart. And then, of course, Moshe Adele blew my mind with his perspectives on Kabbalah. I was like, oh, whoa, Nelly, this there's much more to this potentially, which played out in my my methods of practical magic and spirituality when I what I was experiencing wasn't attested to by the emanationist view entirely. I ended up with a much different view modeled more on like Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's idea of nature naturing and nature natured and the idea of a pre-semiotic reality, which I got from Robert Corrington's philosophical study of ecstatic naturalism and semiotics. Well, the emanationism in Hermetic Kabbalah that most people encounter in conventional occultism is fairly rudimentary and you have to take it to its root to correct the error before it develops. And the error in Hermetic Kabbalah occurs prior to Keter, prior to the crystallization of um, what people perceive as the monad of Keter. In other words, how does the luminosity of the Orensof uh, in the language of the emanationists become expressed from the ensof and my answer to that is that it doesn't it doesn't emanate from anything because ensof is an absolute plenum uh, a fullness that is so complete that nothing can be reduced within it or around it or beyond it so thereby uh, it must be an openness an openness that is completely full a plenum that is absolute and in that absolute openness, fullness, the brightness of pure possibility, the pure possibilizing surge is inherent, right? It's inherent in the fullness of that which cannot be grasped, thereby it's open. The fountain of wisdom calls this a light that darkens by illuminating. So the light is not emanated from and so to then step down in a, a series of calibrated units or levels as the ordinary conventional Kabbalistic, what we call the Hishtalshalus, the, uh, the chain of creation would have. Now, the interesting thing about my view is that I hold that there is no stepping down emanation of light from the absolute. However, I do not deny that the Hishtalshalus, that the chain of worlds, appears. Of course it does. You'd have to be crazy to say that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. That's reality. <laughs> However, there is a common denominator that equalizes high and low, subtle and gross, and it's equally available no matter where in the Hishtalshalus one would find oneself. And that non-emanationist uh, non precept cuts through at any point from from Malkut of Aseya all the way to Keter of Atzilut, cuts through if the view is held and the view is engaged ecstatically. So it's apophatic for sure because the plenum cannot be grasped and the only way to realize it and join with it is 
through not modes of knowing in the conventional sense, but but a complete unknowing, an unknowing that takes over solely and completely and absolutely through the the root of one's being. And in that unknowing, there is a tremendous release of the bound up, crystallized, uh, restrained life force. So in the process of self-purification and immersion in the plenum, there is this blazing forth of luminosity that is purifying and that becomes the path. That is the ecstatic aspect of the path because that blazing forth, and this is where my work becomes expressly alchemical. What happens in the blazing forth of that life force is that the reified stuck patterns in the habit field, which are salts of mercury, they're mercury salts, they're crystallized mercury that has been stuck in various positions by both individual um, misapprehensions of reality and general mishap misapprehensions of reality in the human habit field. So we have both a, um, a, uh, a subjective or personal misapprehension of reality, and we have a general misapprehension of reality by all human beings. In other words, like, for example, I might think that a certain color is red, and you might think that a certain color is red. And we will agree in a general sense that there is a phenomena called red, but my red and your red are totally different. You know, in other words, you have to look at general and specific applications of misapprehension. And both of them fall under the category of mercury salts that become crystallized and reified and stuck at various points within the Hishtalshalus. So the solvent for the mercury salts, that which melts them, is the same no matter where you are. It's immersion in the bath of the ground. And the ground is irreducible and um, beyond relegation to any coordinate point or setting or context. And the work solely consists of locating where you are in the relative sense in the Hishtalshalus, but then immersing in a bath which is non-localizable and irrelevant to um, position within the technical hierarchy. And what this does is it melts the salts that both pertain to knowing the level of the soul and that which is known, the worlds and the various spherot uh, that populate contexts in which mind knows itself. So ultimately, if both the perceiver and the perceived are dissolving into a state of fluidity from a mercury salt to a kind of mercury that is brought into alchemical play based on the heat and the pressure generated from mystical endeavor, ultimately, you have to ask the question, well, what is it that is aware? What is it that, that can be known? Or does the knowing? Well, obviously, subject and object have to be cast aside because those are the conventional solutions to that question that we're actually melting through. So the attribution of awareness doesn't get fed back on a personal knower or a subject mind, nor on phenomena in the realms and worlds. 
in which mind finds itself, it gets um, flipped back to the ground. So essentially the whole endeavor, the whole alchemical structure that works within the Kabbalistic hierarchy goes back to the ground. The, and the non-emanationist view of the ground is what actually allows this to happen. Because what happens is that the, the blaze of the life force, the sum total of this catalytic fire that makes the work possible is based on the transmutation of desires and the desire force, which is generally posited on red and white drops chasing each other throughout the habit field. And we can get into that. Um, and ultimately, the desire is displaced from this chasing of subjects and objects and and thingness, right? And things that are desired, either, either um, the desires are accepted or rejected. In other words, it's like attraction repulsion forces. Mm. Either we're trying to move towards something or away from something, something. <laughs> That's the important word here. And all that desire force is ultimately posited back on the ground, which is that which knows and that which is known. So starting from the place where the emanationists see light coming out of Ensof as the or Ensof to pour through Keter and Chokmah and Bina and so on and so forth throughout all the worlds, that very root is where we immerse. That's the bath. In other words, the bath of the mystical process that makes the alchemical um, endeavor viable is prior to Keter, prior to the Keter of Atzilut. And that point is located everywhere and nowhere. Yes. Uh, equally yes. in any world, in any state of consciousness, any level of the soul. <clears throat> and my system, the system that I teach is a result of an idiosyncratic background coming from various sources overseen by a certain lineage I lived for years in a hermitage uh, where I received training. Other people were being trained. And I've been working with this lineage for, I think it's like 23 years. But before that, it was fairly mainstream occultism, uh, post-Golden Dawn style occultism. Yeah. Um, so in the meantime, I was sent for additional training by both Hasidim in the Jewish tradition and Miznagdim in the Jewish tradition. The, the Hasidim have a devotional approach, which is less technical. The Miznagdim are strictly technical and yeah. mostly are concerned with Lurianic methodologies. So I had to digest that. And then I found the thing that actually worked as a symbol vocabulary to be brought into what is largely experimental occultism. And that is the 13th century Iyun school of Kabbalah, which is really what I hold because oh, wow. I'm not a Lurianic Kabbalist, even though I have um, training in that area. And the Iyun school uh, is attributed to various figures like Isaac the Blind yeah. from Southern Europe. Uh, 13th century is really the high point of it. And the main text that I use is called Fountain of Wisdom. It's a very short text. Mm -hmm. And unlike Lurianic Kabbalah and most forms of Kabbalah that you find around um, that are based in the Zohar, a system 
that is based in the fountain of wisdom, very different than systems that are based in the Zohar, very different set of working axioms. So we could talk about that. Yeah, let me, uh, uh, that'll let, I, I definitely, uh, will will definitely call this the a preamble and I will do a, some homework in now that I have a good idea of, of where you stand and, and we'll I'll have many questions about that. This is, this is very exciting. And I, do, can I, so, but if we, we can ramble on a little bit, if you don't mind, please do. I have, um, so, so why, why do people, what, what's up with emanationism and, and this obsession with Plotinus and Platonic metaphysics these days. What's up with that? Is it just a tendency towards the comfort of totalitarian ideologies to prevail over our lives, not to get too uh, <laughs> incisive here? Or, or is it something else? Is it a discomfort with the idea of, of the unground, the abgrund or the ungrund, this idea that we pursue whatever retreats from us in Heidegger's Dasein? Like what's going on there? Honestly, I think it's neither of those things. I think that emanationism is simply the conventional state of conceptuality. And the people that make an esoteric version of it haven't yet departed from ordinary conceptual structures. And it's that simple, eh? Well, if you think about it, what makes an ordinary conceptual structure work? It's always the reification of a subject first, and then the reification of objects that it perceives or engages with. And each new reification of an object reinforces the solidity of the subject. So then the next step is if you dissolve both into a monad and reify that, you haven't actually left what you were doing before and splitting into two. Now you just are holding it as one. So the whole ball of wax, whether it's a, a dualist or monist presentation of emanationism, is doing exactly what ordinary thought does anyway. So I think that there is uh, ignorance, that there is an alternative to this, and there is a fear, and rightly so, that if one leaves the conventional habit field of reification, one ends up no one, nowhere, with no thing. And that is frightening. So it's the fear. It reminds me of Thomas Merton's quote, uh, at the center of one's nothingness, one encounters the infinitely real. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older. But Mini Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. And that's a tremendously devastating sentiment to a self-identified <laughs> being because... It's certainly I'm, not something Maslow would have liked. <laughs> well, it's, it's death. It's to a, a self-identified being. See, if you hold a non-emanationist view, that means that you are not identifying at all with anything, and you're holding the ground to be absolute. If that's the case, and since the ground is not a void or an absence, right? We're talking about a plenum that is a purely and completely and absolutely full, right? If we're looking at the ground that way, the ground was never born. And if it was never born, there's nothing in it that can die. So if you're displacing personal identification with the ground, with the unborn, that means that death is a, a ridiculous assertion to posit um, on anything, and even that sentence that I just said right there is ridiculous. There are no things to posit beginning and ends to if the ground is absolute and complete and whole. So the idea that there are individual things that have beginnings and ends that are born and that die um, is precisely what creates an emanationist ideology in the first place. So what we're doing when we're struggling against emanationism is we're struggling against conventional conceptuality completely at the root in the most radical possible way. Huh. And, and in order to do that, and here's the, here's the problem that we get into. It's nice to be able to understand what I just said and say, yes, that's what I want in my path, but it's not going to work in my opinion from, you know, take it or leave it whatever I've come up with, the only way that this actually works is as an extension of the direct transmission from somebody who has realized the unborn state. So it requires an oral tradition with mouth to ear initiations where gnosis is passed along. You can't get it from books. You can't get it by yourself. You can't get it by thinking. You have to actually be in the presence of those that have realized it and be in their presence quite a lot, meaning spend a lot of time around them because it's not easy. And the resistance to it is the strongest counterforce possible. So being in the presence of those who have, who have stable realization of this view is hard to wrangle in your life there mm -hmm. aren't you know i mean you have for example a plethora of advitans on youtube who claim this and how do you know if they're bullshitting or not you know it's very very difficult yeah well so, you know, if they're on youtube 
that's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> that's a joke. Oh, yeah. yeah I see yeah. on my podcast all the time, which I do almost daily. You know, if someone's talking all the time, they're probably not doing that much ritual work. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole thing is that um, to verify. I love that, the irony. Yeah, yeah, the, the irony. But that, that puts um, an aspirant in a, a very bad position. <clears throat> Because how do you know whether you're getting scammed? How do you know whether what you're pursuing is worthwhile? How do you verify something that you can't know, that you don't yet know? Uh, and I don't have an answer for you. I mean, I don't know what to say. This is why for millennia, it's been for very few people and tremendous amounts of people get misled. It's just the way it is. It's the way it's always been. To quote the, the famous intellectual and scholar taylor swift because you don't know what you don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right uh when you start to appreciate the scope of what you don't know is the beginning of something right to start to appreciate the fact that it's infinite what you don't know <laughs> yeah because then, then at least you have some can, psychological conception of the infinite to pursue like to immerse in you, uh, but when you think that you have the answers because they're written in this book or they're contained within this system, and that system is not being presented by a living being by virtue of their realization, it ain't going to work. It's just, I mean, maybe, who knows? You know, all things are possible, but I've never seen it work. Yeah, yeah. I've only seen the disasters of that. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, I, I started out the same way everybody else did. I started out with Hermetic Kabbalah and books, and I found um, the, the work of Paul Foster Case, and I was in a Golden Dawn offshoot order. For two seconds, I was in the OTO. I did this <laughs> and that. <laughs> Shout out to Thelema. Shout out to Thelema. We love you guys. You're all right. Well, you know, the thing is that when, so, when someone finds themselves in a room full of bodies doing the Gnostic mass, some of those people might be completely sincere. And this is just what they've found at that particular point. Of course. So, and, and that's got to be honored. I mean, I honor make, it. Yeah. We can make fun of Crowley's assumptions as much as we want. We can't make fun of the sincerity of the people in that room. Yeah, never, never would. I, I, t I always I loved that part of the Golden Dawn vow that you would never disparage uh, or desecrate what is sacred in another's eyes. I think that's not just a promise to be not a douchebag, pardon the French. Uh, je suis Canadien, so I, I like to drop uh, what pathetic French knowledge I have here and there. But it's a methodological strength to not disparage what is sacred. Like I, It makes me think of the sacred and the profane idea found so prominently in Eliada's work. I mean, a lot of people today I hear saying that we need to eradicate the profane and make everything sacred. And I, I think, well, maybe epistemologically or ontologically, you, you might be onto something, reality as a whole, instead of emanationist or, or segmented, segmented reality. But, but methodologically, there's a danger, I think, when you separate, when you, when you unify the idea of the sacred and the profane. I mean, those two pillars of force and form are, I think, essential to the consciousness of that middle pillar. One of the things I covered in the last piece was a bit of old Kabbalistic research that says that one of the old views of the tree of life, the Kabbalistic tree of life, 
is actually that the trees of the that the two pillars are the trees of the knowledge of good and the one of evil and the middle pillar is the tree of life isn't that fascinating yeah i my first book uh called kabbalistic mirror of genesis was about the eden scenario and the two trees and someone offered to buy me any one of your books at one point this girl offered to buy me any one of your books that i chose because she loved your work so much and huh. i never got back to her to my utter woe <laughs> to my eternal regret because then well, when i actually uh when my buddy jesse frater c did a podcast with me and then i went to his house and he showed me your works i was like oh dear god i need this i need this stuff so bad and when i found out about your views on em emanationism i was like i was suspicious for a long time since my practices began i started i was raised in in a maharishi family back in the 80s um so i went from maharishi to wicca to golden dawn right uh and then into a seminary where i studied hebrew and aramaic that was my main focus um before i got into you know the postmoderns and hans gerard gadamer and, and umberto eco finally um but uh realizing that the emanationism was problematic is something I found in my own practices, in my actual experiences. And then finally, when I got into a series of exercises and ritual practices entheogenically with DMT, the idea of emanationism as a possible reality just was shattered altogether. Well, this is an interesting point because I do think that one can make progress in an emanationist system. Because an emanation, yeah, em, an emanationist system, the methodology is going to be gradualist. It's going yeah. to be steps and stages that are progressive. And if you take steps and stages in relation to growth, you can make progress. In other words, what you do today, you can improve upon tomorrow, you move a little bit further. And then the Hishtalshalus, the, the chain of creation starts to make sense because that ladder system is actually a picture of what's happening. Many people need that because the alternative to a gradualist system is a, a, a simultaneous system of total spontaneity. And that's something that will not work in the nervous systems of many people. It's too, it's too big, it's too comprehensive. It involves a surrender of the totality of one's being and unless you can grasp the totality of your being, which includes not only the being of your body mind, but the being of the context, the world, and the reality that corresponds to that body mind, if you could sense the unicity of that, then you can throw that in the fire and then it can be spontaneously liberated in a lightning flash. That is the other tree. There are two trees in the garden and you can eat the fruit of either one. You could eat the fruit of the gradualist path, uh, which is good and evil, which is essentially contrast, dualistic contrasts. Yeah. Or you could eat the, uh, the tree of the lightning flash, which is wisdom. I mean, one is represented by the, the quasi-sphera of dots and the other is represented by chokmah. So if, if you can negotiate true chokmah, true wisdom, which is absolute and simultaneous, the non-emanationist path makes total sense. But if you can't, if that will not make sense to you, because your mind needs steps and stages, there are provisions for that. And those systems actually produce growth. They do work. They do improve upon the scenario of 
the reality that one finds oneself in. So they both can work. However, one problem with the emanationist systems is they claim to be truth. And this is where religious orthodoxy, the tendency towards religious orthodoxy yes. creeps in. Yes. The problem, all religious systems make, if they're truly exoteric religious systems, make the mistake of labeling their methodologies as truths. If we just saw them as methods, oh, you know, methods well, either work yeah. or they don't. Why is this so hard for people to grasp? I, I constantly try and reinforce the point that my views to people are are methodological because like it doesn't matter what I how I think the body works if I exercise it's gonna get healthier it's gonna improve right it doesn't matter if I think it's because the more I exercise and sweat Jesus sees those sweat bullets as angels tears and the light <laughs> of the Holy Ghost fills me with you know divine juju like you can believe that it doesn't matter and, and that's where metaphysics and methodology are at variance. I mean, that's in some parts what I think led to the post-structuralist movement. Um, not to well, maybe it. maybe that's a good method with the Jesus tears and, and so <laughs> forth. You know, like if you see it as a method, try it out, see if it works. Jesus tears, if they work, you know, whatever works. But the thing of it is that when your method becomes a revealed truth, and this is definitely the case in Orthodox Judaism, that Moses received the laws at Mount Sinai, that is the absolute truth. No, those are methods. Do not eat pork is not a truth. I'm sorry. Right. You know, so the whole thing about gradualist systems that require steps and stages is they work out this truth versus method dichotomy the best that one can because the issue is so profound that the ungraspable nature of it just blanks people out. And when somebody doesn't understand something on a fundamental level, on the level of the ground, they just get nothing. They just, they just get zero. They just blank out. They glaze over. So either the lightning flash of illumination happens and there's absolute clarity, instant clarity outside time and space, or one just gets overwhelmed. And for the people who get overwhelmed, who don't understand a, a, a non-emanationist simultaneity, those people need steps and stages, and they need to eat of the, the tree of dualistic contrasts. And, and we have to be gentle with them. We, we, can't, we can't tell them that what they're doing is bullshit, because it isn't. It can work. Yeah, no. However, yeah. but it's partial, but it's a partial understanding. Um, the views that hold non-eminationist wisdom in a true sense. There, not every system does. There are a certain amount of systems that I've found that have that content. For example, um, Ati Zogchen from Vajrayana lineage, the uh, Kashmir Shaivite lineage, the Nath lineage of the Hindus, certain Sufi schools, certain schools of Christian mysticism as well. You mentioned one, for example, the text of Pseudo Dionysus, uh, apophatic texts, hint at this. Um, there are certain schools of Kabbalah, the Iyun school of Kabbalah absolutely hints at this, the work of Isaac the Blind, his commentary on Sefer Yetzirah. These are a handful of lineages that hold this king of all views, as I like to call it. But it doesn't mean that that's the right one and the rest of them are wrong. 
the rest of them are right for those who need it. And for, for somebody who needs rigid structure, gradualist, rigid structure of steps and stages, we got that, luckily. That's what I was saying earlier about like there's seven initiations in the traditional Golden Dawn, neophyte through Adeptus Minor. When I was young, I was like, what could it hurt to go through those? What could it hurt? But, you know, obviously there's a beyond to it. And one of the questions that I, I'm curious about is the question of, and this might be a little obtuse for, for or beyond what some people care about, but I think you might care because I think you and me are uh, cut from the same cloth and, and among the few of our ilk, perhaps. I don't know. I'm, I'm not as worldly as I pretend. But <laughs> um, at a certain stage of methodological development, I mean, when you're talking about the heuristics of moving from one rung on the ladder to the next, like accepting something as truth, just so you can get to that next ladder. And that is very Kabbalistic. That is very much part of the tradition from Jacob's ladder and the Merkava mysticism, right? So is there a point though at the ladder that you get to a certain rung on the ladder where your view of metaphysics, your, your view of the world, your Weltanschauung becomes an actual hindrance to your getting to that next step? Do you think there's a, a point at which your methodological development through theosis and divinization is impacted by that view and whether it's faulty or not such as the debate of what we're debating emanationism yeah i think it has to do with uh identification with experience reification of experience because even the most subtle modes of experience are still traps just like um just like all symbols are ultimately lies if you if you try to grasp them when well, you try really to grasp yeah, when yeah, you try to grasp experience, and this is the problem you mentioned, DMT. Yes, um, that's where I was about to go to, but yes. Yeah, when one has the phenomena of uh, open lucency and the profound expression of limitless light and especially clear light, it's certainly possible that as one is having that experience, one can also reify and grasp that experience. So you can legitimately have the experience and grasp it and reify it in a subtle way at the same time. Then it becomes a trap. And this is what I think psychedelic drugs do. They do activate the parts of the nervous system that allow these sensations to come through. But if you haven't developed the non-grasping discipline, the discipline of immersion, you're just going to treat it like an ordinary experience of a subtle variety, and then it becomes a prison cell. Yeah. So yes, it's good in the sense that now you know that that's possible, but unless you've disciplined yourself to be able to engage phenomena without reifying either a subject or an object or both together, I'm sorry, it's, it's going to backfire ultimately. And then you're going to be chasing the memory of that subtle experience in the post-experience state, and it's going to create problems for you. Oh, and it, God, I've been there. Yeah, then the doors that were opened, once they've closed, you're going to remember the open door, but it's not open anymore. So the memory of the once open door then haunts you and becomes dimmer and dimmer. And the more you try to get back there through memory, the less it works. 
And this is what happens with the reification of experience because the reification of experience ultimately feeds into memory. And that's brain activity because the luminosity that is pure awareness is not brain mind. So there's no memory in it. The, the realization of awareness in the state of pure light or pure open lucency is so far beyond brain mind perception that brain mind perception becomes um, like a rumor, like, like such a thing is not even possible. I mean, it's funny because uh, the, the sparks of the realization of this can inhabit the body mind, but there is no identification with the body mind at all. So how can such a thing be? It sounds like a paradox. Well, it actually isn't a paradox or a contradiction. It's just that um, freedom can inhabit the prison cell and it is still free, right? Just because it inhabits the prison cell doesn't mean it has been imprisoned. <laughs> yeah. Does this make sense? Yes, it does. Um, so I won't say exactly when or where because of, of caution and, uh, you know, but I did 22 experiments with DMT. I, I just picked 22 as a random number. It doesn't connect with anything, obviously, right? <laughs> um, and I, I, got, I, got, I was experimenting with using magical techniques, everything from uh, previous invocations to grade signs to mottos to everything I could, especially my favorite Kabbalistic practice, which is Temura, which is something I'd like to touch on with you after, if you're okay with that. And I did get locked in my experiences. Like I did find often I would go into those realms with them. Um, and, and, and just for a little background on me, I was a, a sober person until I was 20 in my twenties. I, I was very anti everything. You know what I mean? So um, when I, in my thirties decided to experiment and explore the psychedelic realms, that was quite a shocking thing for people to hear, hear about. So, so I, I, I waited for a long time before I felt I was ready to take that those experiments seriously and what i found earlier this year was i kept getting locked in places because i would go into those those spice realms with these paradigms that didn't work they were paradigms like you said very much based on memory and uh, i was i'm a big reader of Henri bergson and he's a big part of my my theses and and my main book um which i i've got to send you that because i think i got to send you that <laughs> and eventually I found a way of breaking through to an experience that I can only describe as the vision of Ezekiel. And it was traumatic to say the least and traumatic in the best way. And that was just when I became aware that a lot of my conceptions of reality, primarily emanationism, were holding me back. And my memories of what I had achieved through different initiations and rituals in the past wouldn't allow me to progress further, but in, in, in actuality, in those realms, these psychedelic realms, would send me into some fucked up places. Does well, any of this make sense, or am I talking crazy here? No, you, you're making complete sense, but no matter what these scenarios are, from the most sublime visionary states to the most seemingly ordinary states of superficial reality where you're like let's say on a dirty city street with a bunch of strangers in a crowd right it totally locked in the most ordinary conception of reality so let's say we have these two extremes you have the most ordinary experience and the most sublime and subtle experience 
still the same basic question. What is it that's knowing? What is it that's known? I mean, that common denominator of that question of essentially the question of reality is the fundamental solvent for all states. And this is why non-emanationism works because just as you could return to the ground and bathe in the ground, no matter what is happening, right? By asking this question, by asking this fundamental question of the ultimate potency in any situation, then it doesn't really matter whether it's low or high or subtle or gross or seemingly ecstatic and brilliant and beautiful or degrading and horrible and nightmarish to your liking, not to your liking, like a Merkava uh, with, the, with the spinning wheels of Ezekiel or just a bunch of stupid crap does not matter. The fundamental issue is always the same. The heart of the matter is always the same. So what one thing that the non-emanationist view affords us is the ability to address the divine squarely by looking it in the eyes, so to speak, if you want to use metaphoric language, to see the face of God and, and not live. Because <laughs> well, the that, part of you that, that dies off is what we're interested in. That was the fundamental thing that happened on my 22nd experiment. Um, and I, uh, experiment's a bad word for it, of course. Um, when you're talking about things of a certain level of holiness, it's actually hard to talk about them, isn't it? Because uh, as much as I'm inclined always to joke about everything in life and see it all as a, an absurd joke, there's experiences and moments that, that, you know, that shatter the radix of my being and my sense of self and everything I was before doesn't matter anymore. Like that's the annihilation. And sometimes I wonder, is that... I don't even know. I'm 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 ha approaching this conversation with you not as a, as a from the perspective of not trying to um, understand my past, but explore a future I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean? Well, you know the the basis of living a life where one renounces views that lead nowhere, dead end views the implications of that is that what you just said, the encounter with the divine, the sublime immersion into divinity, that becomes all that really matters. And everything else is, I'm not saying unimportant, because it's all an expression of that fundamental divinity. So in that sense, the details of life have enormous importance, but to hold them as virtues in and of themselves, becomes a worldly pursuit mm. and worldly pursuits will always um, degrade the path and create an obscuration, an obscuration or an obstruction to that total and complete immersion in divinity. So if you hold the view of the divine at all times as the only really truly important thing and you live for that and that becomes the heart of the matter, no matter what is happening, experientially or circumstantially, then the rest of it either falls in with that great work or has to be addressed as, a, as, as an obstruction. And if it's addressed as an obstruction, one addresses it magically. And the real process of ceremonial magic is um, mitigating obstructions to the path. Very well said.
you know, I can't think of any other reason for it. And this is where we get into a conversation that you and I can really have some fun with Hmm. because the model of an obstruction is a shell and what occultists do with what they pronounce klipoth. I mean, Hmm. I say klipos with a a K because, you know, I was trained by Hasidim, but what one does with the klipos and the realms of shells is essentially the addressing of obstructions. And um, I know that a lot of magicians uh, play power games by manipulating the energies of the shells, and you can do that. It has an effect, but it absolutely is a, a, a sidebar, a, ch- a tangential issue that wastes time when the great work is what you're really interested in. So the question that you and I can talk about either now or some other time is what makes a Kalipa arise? How is it magnetized, bound and subdued, and ultimately dissolved and purified? What are its characteristics? What compounds it? And how is it, how is it utilized alchemically in one's practice? Because the magic and the alchemy become one and the same when one is melting through the realm of obscuring shells in any world. And the, and the Klippus can appear in any of the worlds, in any scenario where there is reification and division. So that's the alchemy portion of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the magical part. Um, and system doesn't matter. I mean, one of the most ridiculous things is two occultists at a party arguing about correspondences. Oh, God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Be- yeah, so what we do if we want to get beyond that point is we digest many systems and understand the fluidity of meaning as it assumes different languages, thereby we're not trapped in any particular language. We see through language to language, and in that transparency, meaning is freed from from its form because the reification, the grasping of individual languages produces an orthodoxy. And then we're back to square one, like we talked about, where your method becomes a truth and you're you're in, uh, in orthodoxy relative to your system. And... I mean, come on. I mean, Golden Dawn. <laughs> you see that? You know, like, well, there's Golden Dawn orders that are are pushing the boundaries. Like, so the, you talked about training earlier and being in the presence of someone who gets it. I feel I had a teacher like that um, who isn't public at all, and I feel lucky to have had all that time in his presence, practicing and studying with him. And and I'm lucky I had that person for me was a, a man named Ramses, and uh, he was he's the one I consider my true uh, teacher in life. I was initiated in the Golden Dawn by Frater Ka, who's hence become well-known as Nineveh Shadrach. But my real teacher and trainer, especially as an adept, was, was Ramses. And I feel I got what you're talking about from him. But again, at the same time, when I talk about what I've gotten or what I've done, I also feel like I've, I've gotten nothing and have done nothing. Like, you know, it's just, it's, I, I'm constantly staring into that abyss of, Da'at and and on a, a tentative balance between angels and demons and and just trying to purify my spirit in a way that I feel I will be ready to leave this life because that's what it's about at the end of the day there's we will die we're all going to die and how are we going to die 
and we don't know exactly what happens after, but I have a sense that the state of our souls at death matters. I believe that. I am not big into soteriology. I, I, I'm a, a lover of origin and, and the idea of a pocket stasis and universal salvation. Um, but I think that there is work we can do to prepare ourselves best for that greatest of mysteries. And when it comes to purification, I'm, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, uh, what do you think of the phrase, a metal is only purified by a tincture of itself. This is a al famous alchemical aphorism, right? Yeah, the that um, aphorism and the previous uh, subject that you were talking about really just go back to simplicity, to the ground, because what you identify with in uh, the body-mind of this life that comes to an end right and then goes into the the gap of the unknown um and then goes through a series of transformations and whatever happens after that is another question throughout all of that the ground doesn't change i mean what you're talking about that seems to be born seems to live and uh, inhabit various qualities go through transmutation of these qualities that move in various ways have these various attributes and then release and assume some other form. Throughout all of that, the ground does not change. The divine does not change. The absolute is absolute. It's complete and whole and absolute. So identification with the relative part that changes prepares you for degrees of apprehension of that absolute. So in that sense, it's important, right? The state of your relative mind upon death will determine future rebirth and the capacity to realize the divine. But if you're just focused on the divine from the outset, prior to the consideration of any of these temporary changes or calibrated changes, well, that's the best of all now, isn't it? So if we say, I no longer am concerned with relative states, I am only concerned with the divine and its absolute nature. And immersion in that is what I'm going to spend the rest of the life of this body-mind doing because this body mind's lifetime is not my concern this life is not my this apparent life and circumstance is not my concern my concern is the changelessness the unchanging right See, the yeah. motion of this life and its movement is not my concern the unmoving is my concern sorry to interrupt you which is why i've always found for me the most powerful kabbalistic purely kabbalistic practice has been temura have you i mean letter permutation yes Right. Are you um, familiar with Abulafia? Are you yes. talking about Abulafian methods? I, I, I'm familiar with Abulafia. Yeah, very familiar. I've been practicing Abulafia for 25 years. Yeah, you know, the, the 13th century schools prior to the Lurianic schools uh, have a variety of different styles of practice. And one of them is... Um, uh, very close to certain Sufi schools, like the Abulafian school is very close to certain Sufi schools with the body postures and the way they use sound. Yeah. And that's something that I have never done because I am definitely um, working a 13th century school, but of the totally different variety to that. So it's like the, the Abulafians are like our cousins. Mm. 
you know, my the you form... and me are cousins, brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I do a lot of um, like I the Golden Dawn Order I was in did a lot of uh posture, the middle pillar, and what they called the the Reiki and middle pillar based on Wilhelm Reich. But from there, I studied enough to develop other postures that I would use. And this is not something I came up with, of course, it's something I learned from history. And I would then, and then I integrated basic Timura, especially with the Tetragrammaton and, 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 um, you know, changing the letters of it in correspondence with the Shem Faresh angels and names to create mm -hmm. ecstatic states within myself. I mean, it all, all of the, you know, for those new newbies listening and, and uh, the, the complexity or variety of technique is always aimed at achieving ecstatic states. Let's, let's not kid ourselves about that. Right. So you're using the name of the 72, I assume with the suffix uh, changes for male and female. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did that years ago, exclusively before I started doing what I do now. So you're actually describing a good portion of my background. <laughs> and, you know, I sounds like you're a good person for me to learn from them. Well, I'll tell you what my background is, the different people that I studied with, and I can say their names, I don't think it's a problem. Um, my main teacher, I've had the same teacher of alchemy, of alchemical mysticism, since 1994 and he is a figure who actually i probably can't name him <laughs> but i could tell you about him he, he is a he teaches a system that i don't practice okay right he teaches the vajrayana system sorry people you won't know how to find this guy <laughs> right i mean i i just realized i would have to ask him first even though he sometimes says yes sometimes says no so better. That's all be right. This is all side. a this is all a preamble to the real interview we're going to do once I read some stuff that you. But you could you could use this. I mean, you could. Put I'm this using out. this. Oh, this is all going to be used. I use everything. I'm like yeah. the First Nations. No, I I'm completely cool with animal. it. I'm completely cool with it. You do whatever you want with it. So people, I've been part people. of this lineage, um, but I've been both outside and inside in this lineage for the entire time I've been there. Right, like this man is my teacher. And his gunla, which is protector practitioner, uh, is also my teacher, but he's my primary teacher. And to a certain extent, the gunla is my secondary teacher. And I have a hut in his hermitage and I live there part of the year and have for, I lived there for years and continue to have this relationship, but they are practicing a form of Vajrayana that is like pre-Tibetan Vajrayana that comes from the Svat Valley in the territory that's now sort of um, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, and it goes back to the 13th century. In the 13th century, there was a great hybridization of systems and syn syncretic systems that became uh, Sufi and Nath and Shaivite, all intermingled, and Vajrayana, of course, all intermingled with each other, along with Nestorian Christians mm -hmm. and Kabbalists, because there were Jews in Afghanistan a thousand years ago. So during that fertile period of crossover, you had this hybridization that carried over directly into what happened in Spain before 1492, also where Christians and Sufis and Kabbalists were all mixing ideas. So in these periods of, of hybridization, you have systems that aren't even categorizable, right? And that's more like what I do with my teacher. 
although what he teaches his community of his people is tantric sadhana and Dzogchen. From my association with that form of alchemical mysticism, he sent me to go get trained in Kabbalah. Now, remember, I was a hermetic Kabbalist prior to meeting him for a long time. Yeah. You know, Golden Dawn guy. Yeah. So he, so he sent me to um, a Hasidic teacher in the Breslov lineage by the name of David Sears. And I became very close with David Sears, Breslov, Rabbi David Sears, Breslov teacher, stayed in his house and lived with him and studied with him every day for about 10 years and studied um, forms of Hasidus with him, which is technical Kabbalah of a devotional, supercharged by devotional approach. Now, at the same time, to get the technical stuff down, like really down, I studied with a rabbi named Alan Brill, who was the opposite. He was uh, from the side of the Miznagdim, meaning non-Hasidic orthodoxy in Judaism. And they are very technical. It's, it's like that's where it becomes like pure math, mm. could say. And none of these guys were doing an Abelafian style form, right? So that's a totally different thing. In order to get the pure Abelafian methodologies, you'd probably have to go to Israel. There's really nothing in the United States in lineage form that goes back to that root, that style of methodology. So I then was, I was like about to get on a plane in 2005 to fly to University of Jerusalem to do my PhD with uh, um, Moshe Adel. Um, uh. And the only reason I didn't was because I also had the, had been accepted by Nicholas Goodrick Clark at the University of Exeter. Well, he was at Wales Lampeter when I signed on with him, but that gave me the chance to also live in Ireland. So I was like, oh, I would want to live in Ireland and do Irish music. So I, I didn't go to Moshe Adele, but I, I, sometimes I regret that. Once in a while, I regret that because I knew that I would have access there to Kabbalah that I wouldn't have access to anywhere else. And I'm glad you confirmed that for me. I'm glad to find out that I did miss out on as much as I thought I did. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Adele's not a practitioner. He's an, he's an academic. So. But he, he's a great academic, and I'm sure he knows all the practitioners, or I would have found them anyway, if God willing, Hashem willing. One of the main guys that all of these academics in the universities in Israel use as their source in the world of practice, and I don't think he'd mind my saying his name because everybody knows who he is, is a guy named, um, what's his name? Um, Menachem, um, what is it? Menachem, I forget what, okay, it's gonna come to me in a second. Boy, my mind just blanked out. And um, I'll tell you later, I'll have to look it up. And I met with him once, he came over and was doing stuff and I had one meeting with him. Menachem uh, Rekanati? Menachem Kalish. Kalish. Menachem Kalish, and he's not on the map. He's not an academic. He's a total practitioner. He's like, you know, absolutely from the side of practice, but all the academics use him as their source of a real practitioner. So I met with him because he's an expert in uh, Ilanot, um, uh, Kabbalistic scrolls, diagrams. And that's my main vocation is I'm a, a maker of, of diagrams. 
both Illinois and what's called Chavises. Well, you do, you're an artist, right? Well, I make these diagrams, they're maps. But, but you're, okay, for those who don't know your work, which I, I'm hoping everyone who's listening knows your work, but for those who don't, you must check out David Heim Smith's books and his art or the diagrams. And the, uh, folks, you don't know what you're missing. Check them out. And we'll talk about your new books in a suffix. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a second, because that's an interesting topic you just brought up. Because I used to be an artist. And when I say artist or use the word art, we're talking about art in a contemporary sense. Art in a contemporary sense in the art world has a certain context and meaning and history as opposed to let's say illustration, which also has a context and a function and a meaning and a history. My work is neither art in the formal sense as art, nor is it illustration. People think it's illustration, it actually isn't. The reason okay. why it's not illustration is because to make an illustration, you have to have a prior conceptual structure and then you represent that conceptual structure. So whatever you do is dependent upon the conceptual structure. In order for it to be art, it's really pretty much going to express personal individual thoughts and feelings. In other words, it becomes an expression of individuality. It becomes an expression of, of um, that which is unique about a person, about a person. Um, it becomes a creative individual expression. My work is neither of those two things. I'm not expressing my own personal thoughts and feelings or reactions, and I'm not illustrating a prior conceptual agenda with a structure. I'm exploring something that is not me, nor is it other than me. I'm exploring it and making maps of it. That's what my practice is. So it doesn't fall under the category of art or illustration or any other category. It's map making, it's esoteric map making. I call it esoteric cartography because it is itself, it requires a totally different category to be understood because it, it doesn't care about me and how I feel and what I think. And I am not illustrating a body of of literature or knowledge, because what I find I've never seen before. What I find comes up spontaneously as a result of my practice, but I don't know what it is until it's there. So how can I be illustrating something if I don't even know what it is? It's purely uh, explorational. So the thing about it is that um, this form of esoteric cartography is not new. I mean, there've been people doing this throughout history, throughout esoteric history. For example, Dionysius Andreas Freyher in the 17th century. Um, uh, you, you probably know him from the images attached to the work of, uh, of Jacob Bohm, as well as others put out by de Bry and Marion in, uh, in the 17th century, put out the majority of alchemical texts that your listeners would be familiar with. But even in the ancient world, you know, um, diagram makers. And this is a, how Illinois making in the Kabbalistic tradition 
started, and that's how we got onto the subject, because I said I met with um, Menachem Kalish, because he's an expert in Illinois, and we sat in a room, we we're just going to have like a half hour meeting, we ended up being there all day. And I brought along with me my friend who's the host of a podcast called A Cult of Personality. Oh, you know him? He's in my lineage. Oh, he lives, really? he, he lives in my hermitage. Oh, amazing. I, I love his work and I'd love to talk to him sometime, maybe if that's possible. Greg Kaminsky. Yeah, Greg, Greg, Greg Kaminsky. Greg, yeah. let's 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 talk. Yeah, I, I'm the one who brought him into our lineage and he's amazing. living there now. I mean, he's he full time, full time practitioner and renunciate. So where, was where are you? Where are you based in the States? Uh, I live in, right outside New York. Oh, Jesus. Wow. I, I, I didn't realize. I thought you were on the West Coast because uh, everyone I knew on the West got to meet the last 14 months in California was talking about you nonstop all the time. <laughs> well, that's because I hired Greg to give lectures about my work. And the people that you um, mentioned that you're friends with attended one of those lectures and he was selling my books. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. So he, Greg so, Kaminsky gave yeah. that lecture because I don't oh. generally give public lectures. Well, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So Greg Kaminsky uh, and I sat with Menachem Kalish in a room somewhere in Massachusetts, and the guy had facsimiles of these Illinois scrolls, which are really long, like one of them's 13 feet long. And the one that he pulled out first was the Lurianic Hishtalshalus, the entire chain of the entire Lurianic system from what your, I'll say it in a hermetic Kabbalistic form because your listeners might not know Lurianic parts of him, from the Keter of Atzilut all the way down to Malkut of Asaya. But it's much more complex than that because it involves parts of him. And he laid it all out in his living room or the living room of the guy he was staying with. And he had a copy of the Zohar and he and I jammed out on that all day. And, you know, this is the guy that the academics turn to because he actually does the Kavanas and the Yehudim, the practices of all of those steps and stages. It's like a total picture of all the steps and stages that make up the totality. And when you do it completely, you have the lightning flash that goes beyond being at any point within that ladder system. So ultimately, the Lurianic Kabbalists who really cut through do hold a non-emanationist view. Mm. However, it's rare. It's really rare. And you find it more with the Hasidic style than you do with the Sephardim or the Misnagdim or any of the other schools of technical Kabbalists who tend to be very emanationistic. Like, for example, the Tzimtzum, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When, when they describe the Tzimtzum, you have the sharp division between those who believe that it really happened and those who understand that this is a metaphor for something else. Right. Yeah, the, the Bahir is my favorite text. Um, so uh, I love, I love talking about Simpson and, and Tikkun, especially you're, you're talking my, in my wheelhouse now, brother. Well, the thing about texts like the Bahir is they are not explicit as to whether they believe in the literality of it or not. Exactly. Exactly. That's what's <laughs> great about these early texts pre-Zohar. Right. Because 
the texts have the wisdom to defer to an oral tradition, because ultimately this has to be engaged in a living form because no book can contain what is being referred to here. So the books don't try to be definitive. The books don't try to be truth. The books present method, like we were saying. So whether you're talking about the Bahir, the Sefer Hayyun, or any one of another uh, handful of other texts from around that period, uh, 11th century to about the 14th century. In other words, texts that go before the work of the Ramak or, or the Ari. All of those texts are meant to be used in an oral setting where you sit around a table and do practice with your teachers. And that's the way that it's passed. Mm -hmm. You know, and... True Kabbalah. Yeah, and that's what I did with Rabbi David Sears, for sure. I can't really say I did that with Alan Brill because he was mostly giving me information. But Alan Brill is the guy who introduced me to the Fountain of Wisdom. And I should say a few words about that because that's I am... The, for, the, for those listening, that's what uh, David here was referring to earlier as the Sefer HaMayun. Right. Oh, no, those are two separate texts. Sefer Ha'iyun and Fountain of Wisdom are two different texts. Yeah, no, sorry. Sefer Ha'mayun, Chokmah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Mayan, Mayan Chokmah. Yeah. yeah, no, I wasn't referring to the book of, of speculation or whatever it's called. Right. Mayan Chokmah is the name in Hebrew. But the amazing thing about that text is that the original is not even Hebrew. The original text for Fountain of Wisdom is a Spanish medieval Aramaic dialect. See, I was actually going to write down, I was writing down on my thing uh, to ask you what the original thing was because I knew it wasn't Hebrew and I was praying it was Aramaic because that was what I actually got trained in. It's, it's actually not Aramaic in the form that you would even recognize it. It's in this weird medieval dialect version of it. Really? Yeah. And there are not that many people who could even read it but one of the people who can, as a matter of fact, he did his graduate thesis at Harvard in this text and this dialect is Dr. Mark Verman, who did the translation for my next book. It's a brand wow. new translation. It's, there's only one other translation out, and he did it. And this is an improvement on that. <clears throat> well, so, challenge accepted. Are, are you able to send me the Aramaic version? No, I don't. I don't have the Aramaic version. Okay. I just have the his translation of it. Because I would love to look at that before we talk next time. Oh yeah, it would be useless for me to look at it because I don't even read Hebrew. Really? Well, nah. impressive. You're an impressive man. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I only know English. I am not a scholar. I am a backwoods rusticant. <laughs> I, I. I am just a guy who does practice, you know, and, and well, makes these diagrams. Yeah, I'm all about the German and Aramaic and Hebrew uh, as a linguist, but uh, I love the fact that you you come down on the side of practice because I think that's what a lot of my listeners especially are curious about is, is how to expand their practice. So maybe we can talk a bit more about that. Um, sure. Yeah. Ask me anything you want. For, 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 the, for all my, my Thelemite and Golden Dawn friends, all you motherfuckers out there, what do you think is the best practice in that tradition? You're asking me? Yeah. What, You're asking what, me what I think you, the best you practice You went through is. the Golden Dawn. 
you 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 got experience in one of the orders i don't know which one and it doesn't really matter since the practices are are the practices and technique is all that matters not 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 your polity um what technique did you find in that golden dawn oto tradition that was most powerful most probably middle probably middle pillar interesting and yeah. and and that's but i think that's where a lot of us come down um it was controversial when the order i was trained in said it's arguable that the middle pillar is more important than the LBRP. And a lot of people poo poo that they're like, Oh, that was Rigardi's invention. But it's like, eh, was it? I mean, technically, it may have been, but as a practice, come on, I mean, when you combine it with the circulation of the body of light, I haven't found anything more powerful. Well, the version that I'll, I'll tell you my perspective on this. Yeah. I don't know what was in the mind of Israel Regardi. However, his middle pillar is a simplification of a practice from Shahrukh Akoidish, from Chaim Vital. It's pretty right. much a reduction of it. And when I you was, look hope, at the, I was yeah, hoping you, you would at, mention Chaim Vital. Yeah, when you look yeah. at a Shahrukh Akoidish, and it's a part of the uh, also um, excerpted material from um, I forgot the fourth chapter that was excerpted from I forgot the name of his text but anyway this is part of the excerpted material and it's in Shahrukh and this is the stuff I know that people are going to all of a sudden perk up and listen to <laughs> well it's on page two hundred and thirty seven of Arya Kaplan's Meditation in Kabbalah I keep telling that. people to read that book but I don't think any of them do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go up, go to page 237 of Kaplan's Meditation in Kabbalah. You will see a, a Yehud practice meditation that involves yep. Shiluvim, which are intertwined divine names. And the main difference between the version of the middle pillar that Hermetic Kabbalists do and this supposed root of that, whether it's actually a root of it or not, it's similar enough that you can connect the practices and the main difference is that rather than just going up and down the central channel, what it's doing is forming unions between the points along the channel. And the way that you do that is by intertwining the divine names. For example, if you make a shaluv intertwined name of, let's say, Keter and Malkut, just for argument's sake, Whatever the dominant name is, you start with that letter and subsume the name that you are entwining in uh, to that uh, name by starting with the letter of the dominant one. So if if uh, Aleph Hey Yud Hey Ehya, the divine name of Keter, is going to subsume Aleph Dalit Nun Yud Adonai Malkut. Right. In other words, if Malkut is going to be subsumed by Keter, you start with the Aleph of Ehya and then go to the Aleph of Adonai and then go to the He of Ehya and then to the Dalit of, of uh, Adonai. In other words, you make a, a, a sequential intertwining of the two based on the sequence of whichever one is dominating. And that's how you make a Shaluv. So you make an eight letter combination of two four letter names. So if you do the middle pillar, and by the way, I've published the extended version with the expansions in the Shaluvim of the middle pillar in two books. Two of my books have this in it. Tell folks which ones. Uh, one of them is called Blazing Dew of Stars. 
And I do it in the style of kind of psychoetheric texturing. In other words, I talk a little bit about the sensations attached to them, but I just do it straight in terms of the technical information in my book, The 32 Keys, in the back of that book. The 32 Keys. This is what? a really important 32 Keys is the name of the book. Yeah. I heard a and glitch on the recording when you said that last word, so I wanted to clarify. The reason why I did it twice is because this was my main practice for a period of about two years. Hmm where I did it multiple times a day for two years. It's a very important practice specifically for occultists who are engaging this material. It completely expands the middle pillar uh, scope, we could say. Um, so I, I would defer to people to consult there in, in my books or just go to Kaplan and figure it out yourself, except I explain it methodologically and Chaim Vital doesn't tell you how to do it. He just says, this is the information. These are the letters. These are the letter combinations. So people won't be able to do the practice. What I do is actually go step-by-step step explaining, you know, what comes first and what you visualize and where it is in the body and so forth. You know, it produces a standing tetragrammaton. Yeah. Yeah. along the central channel. Everything ultimately that happens in any practice that we're talking about involves the central channel and the side channels of the subtle body. And with the side channels, you're talking about the conjunction of red and white drops interacting with each other and what happens between them. And ultimately what is distilled is worked out in the central channel. And this is the basis, basically any yogic form. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the only Kabbalistic text that I know of that gives explicit teachings on the red and white drops is Fountain of Wisdom. Yeah. Um, I guess that will be the focus. Um, let's make that, the, if this is the preamble, though it's gone on a, a while, which I'm glad, the longer it goes on, the better. Um, let's make that when we do talk again. <laughs> I love the fact that this conversation, which has gone on longer than I expected, and I, I would again, this is not a, that's not an invitation to end it. Uh, I'm going to go over the fountain of wisdom because the fact, like, there's so many things that we've talked about that I haven't been able to talk about with many people, and that's just a real treat. So let me thank you again for for doing this with me. That's amazing. You're a remarkable person, and I'm glad you <laughs> exist. Well, th thank you very much. But I should also say while we're on the subject that the stuff with the red and white drops in terms of uh, how um, the wind or the ruach is negotiated in the subtle body via the red and white drops is covered as one of the main focal points of my commentary on Fountain of Wisdom. That's what I'm actually writing about. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. So and that book is not yet out. No, I'm working on it now, and it's in production now, and it should be released. Two books of mine are being released at the same time. In late spring, early summer, if I'm lucky, depending on how everything goes with printing. Since the pandemic started, I have been able to print and release one book. And it went smoothly enough that I think I can rely upon my printer and you know everything that needs to be done to do it again twice <laughs> so <laughs> books are coming out at the same time one of them is my commentary on fountain of wisdom yeah. with the entire text in its original translation by mark verman 
Okay, amazing, so it'll amazing. So there's my commentary line by line of the entire text, plus in the back, just the text by itself, in case you don't care what I say, <laughs> just yeah. want to read Verman's straight translation. Um, and, you know, he gave it to me as an exclusive. It's an update on the one that he published in a collection called The Books of Contemplation, which is put out by Sunni Press in the 80s. And it was all the Iyun fragments and short texts. So there has never been a book put out on the Fountain of Wisdom under its own name in English. There's just one translation and a bunch of partial translations. For example, uh, Gershom Sholem put out some fragments from it, but not the whole text. And um, the other guy, what's his name? Um, put it in a, a, there's a compilation called the Early Kabbalah. Arthur oh. Green, maybe? No, it wasn't Green. Um, I forgot the scholar's name, but he put out like a chunk of it in the collection called the Early Kabbalah. And the translation, it's funny because unlike the Zohar, which is the same, the same, the same. Anywhere you find a Zohar, it's the same. The different copies of Fountain of Wisdom that exist are all different from each other, right? Yeah. yeah. So there is no text called the Fountain of Wisdom. There's many texts There's called text, the Fountain of yeah, Wisdom. Yeah. yeah, and I don't think that this is scribal error. I don't think it's mistake. I think that it was used by different groups of people in different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So what I did with Verman is I just picked the one that corresponded to what I'm doing, you know, and we just went with that because, you know, it's totally right for me and my style. So, so that's the one I got. That's the one I'm putting out. So then there's that. I'm also putting out a book called Quintessence of Secret Mercury, which is a group of images and practices and prayers and visionary texts from the work that I do. Oh, great. Yeah. And the, the early Kabbalah, Idel worked on a book called Early Kabbalah. You're not talking about that one. No, I'm talking about. Um, Are you talking I, about I the Keener? Keener? Ronald Keener? No. Okay. Because Moshe Idel did a book called The Early Kabbalah, which I read with someone. Who did he write it with? I don't know. Okay. You're talking about something else entirely. I'd have to check. Yeah, I'm sorry. not up on my scholarship. Yeah, you're not talking about the Moshe Adele, Joseph Dan thing. Oh, yes, that's that's what it was. It was Joseph okay, Dan. So, yeah, right. I, I read that. I read that in seminary. Yeah, but yeah. the thing, Moshe Adele, I think, just did the foreword for that book or the introduction. Oh, probably, yeah. I just read yeah. everything Adele writes. Actually, my, my library was stolen a few years back. I got doxxed and sad shit like that. But um, <laughs> tragedy aside, um, I've tried to repurchase my Moshe Adele books, and they're now like 200 bucks for 300 bucks for uh, Absorbing Perfections or, or some of his other texts. It's Books have gone crazy, haven't they? They're all like yeah. everything I used to spend a hundred or two hundred dollars on is now worth thousands, and everything I used to spend fifty bucks on is hundreds. It's it's crazy. I can't believe how popular this stuff has become. But you nailed it. It was Joseph Dan. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. The early early Kabbalah, Moshe Adele and Joseph Dan. Yeah, it's funny because the section that he chose to include in that compilation is definitely a good choice. It's probably the most 
important section from the entire text. And I refer to that section as the seer's vision. And that section, that little one page or two page section gives the methodology for the entire system. And then it just expounds on it in the rest of the text. So it's a very, very good chunk that he reproduced. He couldn't have picked a better one, but his version of the text has some different correspondences than the one I use and they don't match up. <laughs> Sorry. They never do, do they? <laughs> well, that's good because then you just, you simply have to learn both systems then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of that. You know, you just learn both systems and see why they're the same, where they're the same and why they differ when they differ. Um, like we said before, I mean, you can get locked in to correspondence as being right or wrong, and that is totally irrelevant besides the point. The point is to understand the fluidity of meaning in itself. So the expression of meaning can change, can do anything, and still the truth will be, will be expressed by it regardless of the transmutational form or stage or style or context, any of those things can change. And either uh, there's continuity of expression or there isn't. What's the best first book for someone to get of yours? 32 Keys. Okay. Yeah, the 32 that, Keys is the overview. People should know because you have so many books and they're so beautiful. Like, ridiculously beautiful they're pretty books but then when you look at them you're like oh they're not only pretty they are incredibly serious for people uh you know yeah there's not many uh cats out there like you are the brother well thank you for for saying that um let me say a word about the 32 keys 32 keys is an overview of the whole of the path meaning if you want a series of maps to understand the basic precepts, the methodologies, and what they're trying to accomplish. This is an attempt to try to map it all out in a set of really stripped down diagrams that are like blueprints. So what I did is I made 32 separate images that when you buy the book, you get a set of 32 cards with it. And the cards are meant for contemplative exercises. And the book and the deck of cards come packaged together. And the three exercises that are used with the cards allow the development of certain skills that are the basic skills of the path. I mean, this is, this is a training system to train one to begin. So one way that you begin is by intellectually understanding the path in its entirety, just intellectually understanding where you begin, how it progresses, what comes up, and ultimately what the culmination is, which is the crystallization of the Philosopher's Stone. Then you essentially just practice um, contemplative immersion and, um, and concentration and discipline the mind to hold non-conceptual states and to abide in those non-conceptual states to the exclusion of distraction. That's one thing I think Rudolf Steiner actually nailed that a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. You know um, what I mean? Like, cause he, he would, a lot of people miss this. I did a series on Steiner and his outline of occult philosophy or sorry, as it's been republished an outline of esoteric 
science, <laughs> you know, because we got a, we got rid of the word occult and went into esoteric. But my point is, sorry, silliness aside, I'm a silly person, but serious in all seriousness, um, Steiner would talk about the contemplation of a thing and then the experience of a sensation. And then he would say, your next step is to contemplate the sensation and experience a state. And then the next step is to contemplate the state. And then you move into the realm of actual divine experience because you have your three steps, you've gone from Asaya to absolute, and you're now not contemplating the world of action where you say contemplated a stone or a tree or an animal, but you are, and you've gone to the experience of that to the experience of that and now you're in the divine absolute realm does that make sense yeah sure I yeah mean, I, I have uh, various ways of mapping out that same progression the way that i generally talk about it is that you start with intellectual understanding and intellectual understanding or conceptual understanding of whatever it is it could be a philosophical premise it could be what's directly in front of your face Right. Yeah, well, Steiner would say you start with uh, physical sensation, and then you move to emotional representation, right, the gefühl in a zela, and then the, from there you move to the intellectual, that's three steps up already, and then it's once you contemplate the contemplation of the intellectual, you enter the spiritual state, or absolute. You know, um, this pardon is pretty... me, I go to Rudolf Steiner a lot, because I was 13 years in Waldorf school. Well, let, let's let's go to to Jesus Christ, Gospel of Thomas. Jesus let's said, "Let's do it. Let's Jesus, do it." Jesus said, "What you want is right in front of your eyes right now." Oh fuck yeah, dude! You know, that, that's like the second page of of uh, Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, and that's what contemplation is. So you start with intellectual understanding. Gospel of Thomas. That's some heresy, brother. That's some heresy. Yeah, yeah. that um all of that. Um, Nag Hammadi Library material and Corpus Hermeticum is really pretty crucial to understanding why non-emanationism works in occultism because th there's so many places where it goes off the rails, back onto the rails, where it's partial where and very rarely complete, but the sum total of it seems to always be skirting this main issue of uh, the one and the many and what comes from something else and whether something coming from something else is even a viable precept. So many people, I was so prepared to find problems with our conversation because so many people said that you had problematic views, but so many, most people have always said that my primary views are problematic. And, and I was just like, oh, Oh, this might this might actually be a good thing. Yeah, I wonder so, what they're talking about. My problem. What are my problems? <laughs> what we're talking about. Everything we're talking about. It's not the simple, straightforward um, emanationism, for lack of a better word, uh -huh, um, that people are used to. Because we we have we're we're in this age that is uh, championing Plato for some reason and Platonism and and the Neoplatonics without. I think taking seriously everything else that's available to us from Aristotle up to the deconstructionists, honestly, if I'm being real. Um, I mean, people like, you know, the, the idea of post-structuralism, I'm a, I'm a structuralist at heart, if you want to get down to it, 
But if you throw away the ideas post Heidegger and Heidegger himself, and I think you have a lot, a, a serious problem. You have a serious problem if you, if you, like you said, dogmatize the methodology. Like I see this in goal to get very real with you. I see this in the Golden Donors, like Samuel Scarborough. I don't mind naming him because I think he and I are, are we're simpatico, even though we don't agree on anything. <laughs> Somehow we're simpatico, though we don't agree on anything. And he and I have never spoken, but he's triumphing this Golden Dawn approach that says that anything like I've done or you've done that isn't the original Golden Dawn system, say just the basic five meditations plus the LBRP before the inner order. He would say that's all fake. That's not real. That's problematic. And Sam, if I'm if I'm misrepresenting you, let's talk on the podcast. I don't mean to misrepresent you. I I laud tr his traditionalism. You know what I mean? Like if someone's saying you shouldn't be putting all these inner order techniques from the BRH to the Rose Cross ritual and the Watchtower into the outer order, if you say that, okay, fine. I I'm fine with someone having a Golden Dawn order that only does the same rudimentary techniques that they were originating in the initial system prior to the later developments. However, what on earth could be wrong with developing any system of spirituality? There can't be a problem with developing systems of spirituality. The idea, this idea that we have in cultural appropriation is absurd, right? The idea that uh, taking polytheistic gods and putting them on the tree of life is a distortion of monotheistic Judaism and Kabbalah is absurd when you consider, like I just did the other day, the Assyrian tree of life as the origins and roots of the Kabbalistic tree of life. You know what I mean? Well, what's wrong with, um, or I should say, what's right with sticking with original Golden Dawn? I mean, my problem with the Golden Dawn is where's the realization from? Have you ever met a realized being in that lineage from whom you are going to receive transmission? It seems I have. To I have. Oh, one, wow. one guy, just one. See, then you have a guy, a living guy, but the system itself uh, tends to swing otherwise, you know, rather than criticize them. Let's well, go back it's to a the... preliminary system, I think. I think the seven initiations from Neophyte to Adeptus are, are a valuable starting point. Like, what do you think of Jason Louvre? You heard of Jason Louvre? Yeah, he yeah. wrote an article on me that was really sweet and complimentary. I mean, he put me in his uh, 10 favorite occult artists uh, once, and then he wrote something about my work specifically that was really, really sweet. And the only interaction I had with him was about that article. He reproduced images of mine, and I, I just really appreciated it. Yeah, I never met I think him. He's a good guy. I, I met him once. He worked in my friend's bookstore in, in Vancouver, Banyan Books. I went to Waller School with the the owner's son. We we were Dungeons and Dragons kids together in the early nineties, and uh, he sold me a copy of Meditations on the Tarot by Anonymous. Of yeah, course. great uh, book. Great book. Let's talk about that. But Louv didn't know who I was when I bought that book from him. I had known who he was through the chaos magic circle in Vancouver that had risen to abundance while I was in Ireland for five years. But I met him once, so I don't know him. He doesn't know me. But he said in that um, Midnight Gospel show on Netflix with Duncan Trussell that enlightenment is the starting point in Western mysteries. What do you think of that? It sounds think, like similar to what you're talking about. I think for me to talk about uh, final, complete, stable enlightenment 
is ridiculous because I don't have it. I am a practitioner. I am working towards it. I don't have stable realization. So I can't tell you anything about stable realization. Better to ask that question to somebody who's there. Well, see, I grew up in the Maharishi world. And in the Maharishi world, you wanted to ascend as high as you could, say, on the tree or in consciousness, and then stay there as long as you could. And I find that transcendentalist view of, of spiritual practice extremely problematic. Well, there's a very easy definition of who is enlightened and who isn't. You don't suffer anymore. If like you suffer, that. then you're, you don't have stable realization. Oh, damn, damn. That's why we're talking. <laughs> yeah. If you still suffer, that means you vacillate back and forth. You could be extremely advanced and you could fall from your view periodically and then be subsumed within the bath once again and lose it and get it and lose it and get it. That's not stability. Stability means that your identity as a body mind is gone. You are not a person. You are not in the human realm anymore. The body walks around and speaks and talks and teaches or whatever, but you have no identification with it whatsoever. So you don't suffer. There's nobody there to suffer. Those who have stabilized their realization can talk about that issue. Those who can't should shut the hell up about it because we don't know anything about it. Because if you're, if you have stable realization, you're essentially on the level of like, you know, a, a, a Buddha or a Christ. So that's that is me. what that is what they mean in the GD by becoming more than human. Correct. That's what they mean. Uh, I couldn't speak for that system, but what I'm talking about is like a few individuals in a generation at best, you know, and, and I think, but is it not the goal? What's that? It, it is the goal though. Yes. It is the goal. Um, when I think of beings like this, I think of, for example, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. It's a good example. Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, how do I know? I never met him. He lived 200 years ago. But there's just absolutely no way that somebody could write what he wrote unless they were able to break through any single barrier. It's too comprehensive. It's too complete and whole. It's, it's too overwhelming. Um, you couldn't fake it with the intellect. You couldn't fake it with just being an advanced practitioner. You have to be speaking. It, it has to be essentially the ground of Ensof speaking through you to produce that. No person could produce that. Groundless could, ground of being. Yeah. That's Heidegger, eh? Well, uh, like we were talking before about contemplative methodology. Yeah. And my favorite like subject. To, yeah, I'd like to finish off on that. I have a few ways of laying it out, but the basic one that is the simplest to explain is to start with intellectualizing phenomena and intellectualizing a view of phenomena to understand it, right? To understand what the goal is, what the methods are, what the problem is, and to understand comprehensively what is both seemingly outside of you and seemingly inside of you. And once you have the inner and outer states matched with a view, you can start the work. The stage after intellectual understanding is really a stage of pure feeling tone. Feeling tone or the felt 
reality of what you understood doesn't require the same kind of conceptual grasping, but there's still conceptuality there. However, it's much more fluid. So if intellectual understanding involves the psyche locking down intellectually on this or that bit of information, it's released, it becomes gushy and fluid and flowing in feeling tone. And it's a way of directly apprehending the, the frequencies and presences and characters of different energies. Once the feeling tones start to open beyond feeling, it enters into this domain that I call textural patterning. Textural patterning or working with textural fields of sensation is no longer feeling in the body-mind sense, meaning how you feel about a particular state. It has to do with total immersion because the patterns or the fields or the textures that arise occupy a pure silence. And in that silence, there's no you and not you. It's total absorption. When you reach that point where the contemplative field utterly subsumes the wholeness of being, this corresponds to generation phase in Tantra. This is what happens, you know, you generate a Yidam, you assume the body of the Yidam, and ultimately the, um, the egocentric principle dissolves completely and the Yidam is all that's left. You could do that with a, a textural field, and these textural fields are not alien to what you're experiencing right now. They're there in the feeling tones and they're there in the concepts. They were there all the time. It's the underpinning of the field of phenomena. The phenomenological field is predominantly textural when you get, when you contemplate it past a certain point. So in this textural patterning, you apprehend the pure silence, which is not separate from the patterns. It's not like the patterns abide in the silence. They are the silence. This is ultimately what's called the chashmal, the speaking silence. I'm sure you're uh, familiar with that from Ezekiel. The patterns are the silence. Yeah. See, that, so, that is, now I, I hate to say this, but I have to, that is so DMT to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I, I speak not as a druggie, but as an anti-druggie, as someone who spent the first 30 years of their life despising and preaching against the evils of drugs. I, I was trained as an Anglican minister, right? And I used to give sermons against the evils of drugs. And then I was sitting at the Irish the banks of an Irish river in Ireland and took my first mushrooms and reality changed for me. And I started a whole new journey, even though I had already been a chief adept of the Golden Dawn in Canada for many years before that, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this reality has come to a cataclysmic end. And I see a whole new vista of spiritual experience open before me that is not actually just some chemical trip in my brain, but a merging of realities. And that merging is the destruction of each reality to create a new reality. Does that make sense? Sorry. Yep. Let's go right to that point. View on the banks of the river or the DMT equivalent, right? Textural patterning comes up in the depths of contemplation. One version of it, you've arrived at that point through DMT. The other point, you've arrived through pure practice and the discipline of contemplation. 
and of course I've done both. So I'm speaking about my own experience here. You have, I was yeah, afraid to ask. <laughs> of course. I, mean, I, I used to go to this place called the church of the psychedelic on ninth street and, you know, in the seventies growing up where we used to do DMT communions when I was a teenager. Yeah. No way. Yeah. But the, the point that I'm making is that in the scenario where textural patterning and silence comes up on DMT, you are absolutely going to reify that as an experience. You will have you have the, the experience of the textural patterning abiding in silence, but you will instantly reify it and not be able to appreciate what that really means. Because when you learn to do it organically through the sheer discipline of controlling your mind, you can appreciate what the difference is between reification and non-reification, between grasping as experience and non-experience. And speaking from that vantage point, I look back on that same style of experience that I had under DMT. And I think it's like, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, it triggered the same uh, uh, alchemical reaction. But what I did with it had a totally different meaning. Mm. Right. So it's not the difference between two different experiences. It's a difference between the same experience having two different meanings. Yeah. Right. So once you train yourself in um, abiding in non-conceptuality, uh, navigating textural fields of patterning and, and scintillating fields of pure texture and what in Kabbalah we call the world of points. Right. The scintillating points where each point is infinitesimal and immense simultaneously can't be localizable or mapped in terms of its smallness, but includes the whole of space within it. So we have an infinite field of points that are actually horizons that contain galaxies. And each of those galaxy size points is a single instance of experience. So it's as small as possible and as big as possible. And you have a field of scintillation where essentially the desire to differentiate immerses in undifferentiation and it produces a, a kind of a tension. And in that tension, silence and the texture within the silence are antagonistic with one another. And this is where the monads get purified. The tendency to devolve into a, a monistic understanding gets purified out. So after textural patterning, one can go way past that point where immersion into pure luminosity becomes possible. And immersion into pure luminosity, especially clear light, has no conceptuality within it whatsoever. And that's where appearance and awareness are a simultaneity, that there is no subject and no object, no epistemological or ontological reification whatsoever. And you could even go further than that. And this is the really important point, because when you go past luminosity, and the luminosity of awareness, you go into that which is purely open, essentially a nothingness. And in that nothingness, in nothingness, there's nothing, right? So that you can't say anything about it whatsoever, but that's the apophatic state. That's the yeah. depth of the apophatic state. Now, legitimate apophatic mysticism, when it, when it overflows back into the fullness of infinite variation, Either it carries with it 
its openness, its openness, fullness, either the plenum is carried back into phenomena, or it isn't, or you fall back into the ordinary patterns of reification and division, and then the mind just does its thing again. So what happens to a practitioner is even if they have this breakthrough and have a spark of the openness, fullness unfold, the trick is to watch yourself reinstituting the habit field and then immerse again and again and again in the bath. And if you, the more you do it and the greater the fire with which you do it, the greater the purification and the greater the extent and duration of the efficacy of your practice gets carried out. And this takes years upon years upon years, immersion upon immersion upon immersion. And ultimately, ultimately, when you ripen to the point that it becomes stable, which is something I do not know anything about, <laughs> you reach that point where you don't come back. Yeah. And that's the rarest thing on earth, you know, but for the rest of us, like I'm a practitioner, I'm, I'm a mystical practitioner. I'm also a renunciate, a retreatant. I don't have a conventional life or an ordinary life. I don't have responsibilities. I don't do anything else. I'm not interested in anything else, but I'm not enlightened. Dude, people, people don't get my life either. Like family aside, they think I'm insane, of course, but like there's this tendency in the occult world during this occult revolution, you might say that we're experiencing to see um, magic as a means to financial success and, and worldly power and okay. dominance. And, you know what I mean? Like, this stuff is going on. That's a big thing right now. Yeah, and, just and, disregard and, it. Yeah, just well, disregard well, it. Well, no, you know, the, the word that keeps coming to my mind when I, when I dip my toes in the popular occult world is <clears throat> simony. Uh, is this simony? I think it's simony. I think we're, okay. we're in Look, the age of simony, but like if people want to sell talismans and do magic for pay, I don't have a problem with that, but it's not for me. It's not for me. Like, you know, most of my financial and economic losses in my life, I think are God given. Like I've taken steps recently in the last three, five years um, on my spiritual path that led to the utter obliteration of my so-called <clears throat> success as my family would have liked to have seen it right you know I, I got doxxed I had home invasions I lost my libraries hundreds of thousands of dollars of books all this stuff but when I touched base with my holy guardian angel you could say they were like you asked for this and I was like no and they're like yep and I was like mm, maybe and they're like we think so and I was like fuck you know what I mean well, let's talk about that stuff. You can see I got all agitated when you mentioned it. <laughs> when I mentioned what? Um, the idea of worldly magic. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you got agitated when I said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you perform magical acts to manipulate phenomena, to produce uh, a circumstance or an outcome that you like versus one that you don't like, or it yep. could be the opposite. You could be avoiding something that you don't like or trying to get something yep. that you like. Yep. doesn't matter. It's still this manipulative um, reshaping of phenomena. According, yeah. It is according to your worldly desires. This is exactly what the, this is exactly what the red and white drops 
are doing in their ordinary state. Why don't so, people see that as problematic? Well, I know I just is, lost 10 listeners when I said that. See, this is the reason. It's because the red and white drops essentially just chase each other. That's all they do. They will never find each other and reconstitute their wholeness. They will always be separate, the red and white drops. But in their chasing, we have a byproduct. And the byproduct is the desire force, the chasing of that which we think will make us happy. Mm -hmm. So even if we temporarily get what we want or get away from what we don't want, it doesn't really actually do what it what was promised. It doesn't solve the problem of our existential dilemma. It doesn't actually make us happy in any kind of permanent way. There could be amusements or distractions or pleasurable feelings or whatever, or we accomplish a goal. But getting what we want or getting away from what we don't want will not make us happy. It doesn't work spiritually. It only works in a worldly sense. And even then, only temporarily and only partially, because what actually will make us happy is realization. It's gnosis. The desire force ultimately is a mask or a con or a scam for what's really meaningful, <laughs> really what we want, really what we crave and long for and yearn for is ultimately immersion in the divine. That's what we're built for unbeknownst to us. So worldly magic is just a temporary distraction of the chasing of the red and white drops and screwing around with phenomena to try to tweak it to get it to be more to our liking. And I'm not necessarily for it or against it. I think it's just a waste of time. Amen. Amen. I mean, uh... God bless you. God bless you, brother. <laughs> See, the reason why I said that in relation to the red and white drops is because the desire force is usually framed in tantric systems by the thrust and the surging of sexual polarity. But this also applies to a person looking at a commercial on the internet and desiring after some object that they want to acquire. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you want a car or you want, you know, um, some benefit or some situation, or a little vacation paradise. You want, uh, uh, you know, a really good meal. Oh, I want that sandwich. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not all like the, the, the sexual context that it's framed in usually in, in what I call the soft core porn version of Tantra that inhabits the Western popular misconception. It's, it's everywhere. It's yeah, the, the yeah. desire for worldly things by a worldly mind. You know, I, I grew up and actually like from age 10 on, I was trained in the Maharishi style of Tantra. And, and then I, I investigated Wicca, Scott Cunningham, Druidry, and then Golden Dawn. Um, I had a really fucked up childhood. You don't know much about me, I know, but um, I've never done sex magic, which people are always surprised by. I know a lot of people are masturbating to sigils and stuff like that. And I think that's great. I think that's great. Like the more people having pleasure with candles surrounding sigils, the better. Like, amen, go for it. You, you go, girl, guy, just go for it. I've never done that stuff, but I did learn how to channel my body's energy. You know what I mean? So as Tony Soprano would say, a salute. Good for you. 
<laughs> oh god yeah so i did learn how to do that and then when i started practicing golden dawn magic middle pillar and lbrp and all the other stuff i realized that if i didn't masturbate or if i did in a certain way that i could reuse that energy so i like most of the time like i mostly this is crazy stuff to talk about i know I, i'm i'm there's there's a slightly catholic side of me that doesn't like even saying the word but but when I abstain from masturbation and I channel that energy back into my system, that's how I can get up every day at 5 a.m. infused with the light of God and overwhelming fire so much that I don't have enough hours in the day to do everything I want to do. You know what I mean? So there's this credible power that comes from channeling that kundalini force, that serpent nehushtan, nehush nahash, it's all the same thing, right? Nehush, uh, nahash. Nahash. Nahush, nahash. Yeah. Well, uh, Hebrew wordplay is a fascinating thing, and we could talk about that next time. But like tohu vevohu, nehush, nahash. Well, I, I, I had a really beautiful experience learning biblical Hebrew in seminary. I had a great teacher who was just a Hebrew woman that specialized. And then she actually, my Hebrew teacher, uh, went into Aramaic class with me because my Hebrew Bible professor, Jim Lindenberger, decided to teach Aramaic and he was one of the few professors in North America capable of teaching it, biblical Aramaic. And so my Hebrew teacher who had just taught us Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, did the Aramaic course with us to learn Aramaic because she was like, this is not available everywhere. And it really, really is not, unfortunately. To the extent that like when I met friends of mine later at the Association for the Study of Esotericism, which is the academic association that, you know, promotes esoteric study and i don't know if you're aware of it there's there's the ase and there's SWE, which are the two academic societies in europe and america that focus on esoteric study in academia and when i met my colleagues at those conventions uh who studied at places like harvard and shit like that they were shocked to find out i went to the vancouver school of theology because they're like you had all these teachers i'm like yes i did and like most of them are dead now because they were the last old guard people who studied with like Carl Barton and, and Paul Tillich and Carl Rahner. Like these are big names in theology from Catholics to Protestants and you name it. And I was very lucky to have that experience. And where was I going with that? I don't know. I'm overwhelmed with the current. There's a current of energy flowing through me in this conversation, brother, which is uh, nothing short of humbling. Let me just say well, that. Well, let's go back to a previous subject that you said. Okay. You know, we were talking about worldly magic, and I mentioned that worldly magic is simply the attempt to control the force exerted in the field of phenomena, in the appearance field of the red and white drops, because the red and white drops, although they purport to be inside of you, are actually what you perceive as outside of you. So whatever happens with the red and white drops in your subtle body, that shapes the reality that you think is an objectively real world, right? Because there really yeah. is no such thing. No. The same thing is true with worldly magic in this so-called sex magic, because what you're calling sex magic has nothing to do with karma mudra practices or the sexual yogas that are done by advanced tantric practitioners. Nothing whatsoever to do with it. Because, you know, I lived in a tantric hermitage for a long time. and Okay, when you say tantric hermitage, for the because I, do, I don't know. I'm going to pretend I know, but a lot of people don't know, and so I'll pretend I don't know, but I actually don't know. Get it? I'm being meta. Um, what, is that a sex commune? No. 
Okay. Uh, tantric I didn't hermitage. think it was. No. Tantric hermitage is where people are trained to do tantric sadhana. Tantric sadhana is And that doesn't involve a bunch of people having group sex. The amount of tantric practitioners that get to the point where they're doing the sexual yogas or the karma mudra practices, you would have to go through preliminary training, which takes usually about three years. Then you would have to go through generation phase practice, which most people do not get through. That takes you the majority of your yes. life. Yes. Then you would have to get through completion phase practice, which is so rare that for somebody to become a completion phase practitioner is like the heavens are shaking. That's how rare it is. Right. And, and so, within completion phase practice, there are many styles of practice, including karma mudra or the sexual yogas. And you have to be trained so thoroughly and be so have such a taste of realization. We're not talking about stable realization. We're talking about enough of a taste of realization that you could actually control the red and white drops to do actual sexual yogas. So when people who really know nothing are messing around with what they call sex magic, it's just fantasy land. Yeah, that's all it is. So when I say so, so you actually you actually understand what I mean when I say I was trained in Tantra from a young, young age. You understand what I say when I say this didn't lead to being able to do sex magic in my teens or 20s. What it led to was realizing that I had a long way to go before doing any kind of practice with someone else. And well, to the, to I mean, the extent it, that I still have never done any kind of sex magic or tantric practice with another person. Well, because let, I'm not necessarily ready, much less have found someone else who's capable of doing that, correct? Yeah. Well, let's state it in terms of types of practitioners, right? Like sure. I mentioned, there's preliminary training, there's generation phase, there's completion phase. And within the completion phase, you could do these karma mudra practices or sexual yogas. But that is based on the fact that you've had the preliminary training and success in generation phase. And it's predicated on the fact that you are that style of practitioner, because just because you get to completion phase practice doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be how it's expressed, because there are other forms of expression of that level, depending on how you're wired. Like, I'm not wired that way. So I never did karma mudra practice. I don't know anything about it, except how it works. I've studied how it works because my teacher thought it was important for me to understand the mechanics of it, so to speak. But I'm not that style of, I don't have that configuration to be able to do that. You know, I, I practice a purely contemplative type of practice. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm right those... with you there. I'm, all I'm, I'm, I'm a contemplative fellow myself, but I yeah. can't deny the fact that from a very young age, I was trained in the techniques to prepare myself to do something that I never did. You know what I mean? Yeah, and um, I think that a lot of people in the Noth lineage, and I think um, a lot of people in uh, Kashmir Shaivite tradition would also say the same thing. Um, the thing about Vajrayana is specifically in Anu forms as opposed to Ati forms is that you spend the majority of your life doing sadhana practices, liturgical practices that are usually presented in the form of a narrative. 
with a complex series of visualizations that move biophysical energies in accordance with mantra recitation. And yep. when you that engage, yeah. And when you engage in sadhana practices, you do them over and over and over yep. to the point where it's extremely exquisitely boring yep. until the <laughs> point where, until the point where it's not boring. That's what I was, that's what I was doing from age, uh, oh, my parents uh, in the Maharishi school, we were doing that, you know, you and you know who Maharishi is, right? Sure. Yeah. I don't know what his specific methodologies are, but what I'm talking about when I talk about tantric sadhana is usually based in a visualized form of a yidam or a deity form, which is visualized and the form of the deity and the luminous expression of the color and the qualities and the iconography is synonymous with the mantra the mantra and the visualization of the deity are the same thing right? so we would we would only visualize the point of infinite light with the mantra from age seven onward weird hey well in the i don't know about that system but in the system that i'm familiar with there are usually wrathful and non-wrathful forms of sadhana yeah, so if it's and, from, in Maharishi, that's that's when you get into the cities, and I never did that because that cost thousands of dollars and blah blah blah. Yeah, so when you so ask I have me, a little, I have a little bitterness towards Maharishi and transcendental meditation. There's a reason I left it for Hermeticism. I believe that Arya Kaplan had some interest in it. And I well, think I have one... interest in Ari Kaplan. I, I, Kaplan is more my guru than Maharishi Mahesh Yogi ever was or will be. So, amen. You know, the funny thing was that when I was working with the Breslov teacher, Rabbi David Sears, I used to go to the Breslov Shul in Borough Park in Brooklyn. And that's the shul where Arya Kaplan used to go when he was alive because he lived up the street. He lived, Do you know, I've you know, heard a myth. I've heard people say, that he died at 27 and was taken straight to God like Enoch. And then when I looked into it, I was like, he didn't die at 27. No, he died at 47. Yeah. Okay. So people are, are putting him in the, uh, the uh, Janice Joplin uh, 27 club with Robert Johnson and these rock stars, right? Isn't that strange? That's a what well, strange misinterpretation you, you might say, but he you did can't. die young. He did die young. I'm turning 40 in, in 20 something days. So. That 47 is young. You can't blame people for mythologizing whatever they nah. think is sublime or good. No. It's, a, I mean, it's an impulse that's actually useful. But the thing that is true about Kaplan is that he lived in Kensington neighborhood of Brooklyn. I uh, used to pass by his house all the time. He used to have his classes there. And the classic books like Inner Space were actually transcribed lectures that he gave in his house. And I studied with quite a few students of Kaplan. I missed him by a decade or so. So I never met How the How old man. are you? I'm 57. Dude, it's so crazy talking to you. You sound like you could be a contemporary of me. You also sound like you could be 25 or 27. You have an ageless texture to your voice. And I appreciate well, that. I, you got that as I, a compliment. I grew up in the New York City of the 70s. And I had a really wild childhood and adolescence. And New York City in the 70s was just 
complete chaos. But for a kid like me, it was the wonderland. It was like there was no law on the street and it was just a wild barrage of craziness everywhere you went. It was just craziness. And that's how I grew up. So I grew up in this crazy environment with, with no structure and I succumbed to it by the time I was in my late twenties, you know, on one level, my life was pretty much almost over and it was either um, do drugs and, you know, live a kind of a criminal existence and die or, um, or rebirth yourself. And because of various things that happened to me, I, I sort of had no choice. To rebirth and, yourself. Um, I've been sober and completely clean from all substances since 1990. So that's Jesus, a long time. I was, I was nine years old then. Yeah. I mean, I went from, you know, being a drug addict my entire life uh, up until that point to being completely like uh, totally 100% clean. Are you, are you like full on friend of Bill's? No, I never went no. into rehab or did no. any kind of recovery program. I just stopped cold turkey. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, my cessation of drugs was, you know, a great miracle. It's like, you know, being addicted to hard drugs um, and stopping cold turkey and going through withdrawal and not caring. I don't know how I did that. Mm. But the reality of it was, but I, I did it, you know, August 17th, 1990. And as a result of that, I realized that, um, that I didn't die, although I, I had a heart attack once and almost died. But Jeez. because I didn't die and because I should be dead and mm. because I have this, you know, open field of you could do anything now. I mean, uh, if, if, right. If, if you Powerful. cheated death, you, you know, you could do anything. So, so what happened to me was that, Sorry. Be, that became the spiritual impulse. That became the impulse to investigate what I knew the entire time was what I was really interested in, but never, never seized upon. And, um, you know, it took a really long time to get my head screwed on straight enough that I could actually discipline my practice you know, on a daily basis, get up in the morning, not think of anything else, put all my energy into concentration. And by the early 90s, by like 1993 or 1994, that's all I was doing was practice. But I didn't have enough of a resource. And I hit a wall with Western Esoterica in the Golden Dawn. Really? Where, cool. Yes. Be awesome. Because I, I did not receive what I needed. And ah. I had I had to go further. Of course you had to. Yeah. And what I needed was f the first place that I went when I realized that these people didn't have anything to transmit to me beyond what they're transmitting to me is I thought, okay, I'll go to the source material, meaning the written source material. Yeah. So I went to alchemical and Kabbalistic sources Corpus Hermeticum, Sefer Yetzirah, the alchemical texts from the 17th century, like Splendor Solace, uh, you know, and I went to, I hit those texts hard. I hit all the ancient fragments in the 17th century and the Renaissance stuff as hard as I could. Then I hit a wall of that because they're just books. You can't get it from a book. So 
that was like, if I don't break through this wall, this is going to end very badly. And that's when I started meet, meeting living beings who could actually do some teaching and transmission. Mm. And I never looked back. And it was kind of the, the story that I've already articulated to you, the people that I've studied with. And there are a few more on that list. But what happened was that after, well, let's say by 2000, four. And that's a pretty long time of being a practitioner and going through training. By 2004, that's 10 years. Um, yes, that's 10 years. Um, something else happened. 2004, where, man, that's the year I got divorced. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm that sorry. It's a big year of change. No, it's a big year of change for for both of us it's 2 p.m in the afternoon and uh i'm ecstatic to be talking with you so i'm, I'm getting a little bit random it's all right a, i have a podcast launch with a jason augustus newcomb do you know him i do not uh he's a he's a great guy we're launching that at 9 p.m tonight i usually go to sleep around 7 or 8 p.m and wake up around 5 uh for the planetary hour for ritual work for you know the first sunrise hour and the fact that uh, the the fact that I'm uh, talking with you at this mid hour of the day is just an utter delight. So pardon my little. Uh, well, it's a good I, thing I'm, that we I'm getting so it. emotional. I'm getting so emotional sometimes because, like, I some I feel so alone sometimes. Like, the, do you know how few people there are who go through the entire Golden Dawn, do hierophant for all the initiations for years but then dive deep headlong into academia and Kabbalah and then find someone they can talk to intelligibly about this stuff. Like you're a rare specimen. Like why aren't there 20 of you? Well, you know, one practice in Tantra that I'm sure maybe you've heard of this is when you're doing Tantric sadhana, you could visualize many versions of yourself, infinite versions of yourself, cloud-like, voluminous, billowing spaces of images of yourself doing the sadhana. And each particular visualization of yourself doing the sadhana generates the amount of merit that you do. So you've just like infinitely increased the generation of merit, you know, a billion fold. And, and this is like a really wild thing to do, because if you get really good at it, you're in this infinite hall of mirrors, each of them doing the practice. You don't know which one is actually you anymore if you get good enough at it. It's just all of space is filled with the, the, the generation of the particular sadhana and the activity that you're engaged in. And if you stop reifying one body-mind's worth and spread it out over the whole of space, all of appearance is essentially doing the sadhana, not you. And besides, what is the you at that point? You know, and it's a very interesting technique that was taught to me very early on. And you could do it even in the preliminary stages of uh, the generation of practice. Uh, it causes you to question identification with a single body mind. In addition to generating all the merit and fire are you familiar with William Butler Yeats very much? Well, only 
in the sense of his affiliation with the Golden Dawn and his own poetry. Have you read much of his poetry? Sure, I've uh, not recently, but um, am somewhat familiar with it. I'm I'm a rusticated backwoods dude. I mean, I'm an I'm an ignoramus. I'm an uneducated boor. I'm a fuck yeah, uh, you know. So I that's, don't know nothing. That's from... what I strive to be. <laughs> yeah. So I I you know I don't have a lot of fancy book learning. <laughs> But, when, we, um, when we do the follow-up to this would you would you read a poem of his with me uh, uh yeah sure there's a poem he has called a dialogue of self and soul that i keep thinking of throughout our whole conversation which i expected this i i thought this was going to be the intro to a podcast so i thought we would talk for 30 minutes and then do a full three four hours when we actually talk for real no i think but, you should put out this whole thing oh it's all going everyone everyone people are coming in their pants right now trust me uh, <laughs> excuse my humor it's crass but when we do the follow-up to this i would love nothing more than for you and me to read his dialogue and self and of self and soul which is a two-parter goes back and forth between my soul and myself my soul oh yeah yeah sure i do know that and, piece yeah of course you do so yeah. when we follow up with that could we do a reading of that live and you don't have to memorize it though that's my preference but like just read we'll we'll go back between myself and my soul and i'll be myself and you'll be my soul and we'll start the next podcast with that would that be cool with you well, uh, sure. Let's give that some consideration. But in the meantime, we'll do it at the release of your books. <laughs> well, right Cause, now, because right, right now, now we're promoting your 32 keys and the preamble to your new books coming out. OK, but better yet, better right yet. now, why don't you ask me anything you want? Do you think. Do you <laughs> think there is a methodological, practical, magical application that people are overlooking regarding the theories of the lightning flash down from insofar through Mal Keter and Malchut, followed by the serpent of wisdom and the paths that it overcrosses and underlies as a methodological practice of the electric and magnetic polarity causing a tension that allows us to glitch reality and create change thaumaturgically. Or theoretically, yeah, of course, of course, that's all I ever write about. I mean, what what you're asking here is the blazing up of the psychoetheric fire from the the five bodies that we have some measure of control with, and our longing becomes a fire. Like I said, there's intellect, there's feeling tone, there's textural patterning, there's luminosity, there's openness. Each of these five fires blazes up. That's the nachash. That's the serpent. It rises up to the point of dot, but goes no higher. Based on the intensity of that flame, the mercury salts that crystallize in Keter that normally restrain the full apprehension of the aura and so are restrained and, and held in check depending on what the body-mind is capable of receiving to protect itself. But based on the amount of blazing, those mercury salts soften and become fluid and there is a dripping down dependent on the amount of blaze of the actual fluidity of the secret mercury of the Orensof. And as the dripping of the secret mercury comes down from Keter, Dot actually disappears and is subsumed by Keter. 
and the blaze coming up and the dripping coming down coalesce into a crystalline form. And that's the beginning of the philosopher's stone. Now, the reason why this is exactly what you're talking about is because this does not happen gradually. This happens outside time, outside space. This happens in the instance of a lightning flash. It doesn't mean that it's complete because it happens partially as a lightning flash, but the lightning flash spark, the instance of realization, flickers on and off quite a bit depending on your level of practice. And ultimately that flickering becomes an entire field that includes both curvilinear relationships and geometric relationships, meaning you know, straight lines and angles and, and biomorphic forms or organic forms. And the vibratory frequencies, the waveform, that's the nakash, and the particle, the spark, the point, become synonymous with each other, you know, uh, uh, spark and wave or, 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 uh, or point and wave. And in the simultaneity, the circle, the periphery of the circle and the center point become equalized. That's the geometric analog for this. And it happens in an instance of a lightning flash as the Nahash rises and ultimately breaks through the, the barrier of Eden, uh, the circumference of of Eden and this melting of the secret Mercury subsumes the Nakash and the Nakash and the secret Mercury actually become realized as one is in the same, which they are from the outset because you're not producing something that wasn't already the case. It was always already the case. Is this making sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah. In that instance where what is always already the case crystallizes, you have the beginning of the philosopher's stone in the heart and modes of knowing that shine through the heart, the Philosopher's Stone becomes a kind of a prism for the Orensof taking the form of infinite variation and the forms become irrelevant. They're the forms of the five worlds, but the meaning of their profundity and their infinite depth and their scope and their brilliance is unimpeded and unrestrained. And that's the alchemical process. So the answer to your question is yes. I asked the wrong question. Reshi, <laughs> I asked the wrong question because I knew that answer. Do you oh. know what the real question is? What's that? Reshi, do you have a teaching for me? Because you've gotten to know me a little bit now. You've heard you... me on levels that people don't usually hear another human being in this crazy day and age. So the question is, as I would ask any Rinpoche, do you have a teaching for me? Well, I'm not a Rinpoche and I'm not, I don't have yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> yeah. Do I have a teaching for you? Sure. Love the divine to the exclusion of everything else. Hallelujahs, hallelujahs. Amen. Yeah. I can't improve upon that. You love the divine to the exclusion of anything else that's beyond high and low, that's beyond beginner and advanced, that, that's beyond realized and unrealized. The whole of the path is contained there. And all you have to do is do that and do it more without end, more and more and more. And that becomes the sum total of both the path and the result of the path. This has definitely been the first podcast I've done that has challenged me personally as a spiritual being. And I look forward to actually listening to it for the first time ever. I hate my own voice. I hate my own image. I hate my own self in a, in a way. I don't mean that literally. I mean that sort of, you know, 
I get enough of myself every day that I don't need to like replay it. But this is the first podcast I've done where I will definitely be listening to it entirely and taking notes on the podcast I've done. And those notes will be heuristic for us to discuss more next time. Um, and, and mainly that's not so much so I can question what we've talked about. It's because I want to question it in regards to the Sefer HaMaim Chokmah because I'm gonna look at the Aramaic I don't give a shit if it's Aramaic that I'm not familiar with. My Aramaic is fucking solid and my biblical Hebrew is phenomenal. I downplay myself a lot because I'm Canadian and we like to pretend we're not as smart as we are. In Canada, we always say, you know, that, well, I'm not going to say that. It's okay. Really well, if you want to, if you want to do that, there's two manuscripts that you could probably find. One of them is the Vatican library manuscript and um i literally I, have friends in the vatican who send me manuscripts at my request yeah this is this is you know microfilmed from a long time ago so you can i'm sure that they've digitized it um there's that one and the vatican library manuscript is not the one that i use but it's close the there's one i think in the british library i'm not really sure about that one if you go to Verman's book, he'll tell you where all the different manuscripts are. But ultimately, the question is, with the Aramaic and his translation, is not so much the accuracy of the words, but the methodology that they're suggesting, which no words can contain, because ultimately the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the English, whatever, the symbols, the math, it's all out the window. They're alluding to something beyond language that is purely practical, a methodology. And the Fountain of Wisdom is a textbook on how to contemplate the divine and be immersed into the contemplation and disappear within it. And that's the only thing that matters, really is not getting the text right or cracking it, but ultimately putting it to work. And when you put it to work, if you can put it to work, see, here's the weird thing about the Fountain of Wisdom. I wrote a book called Sacrificial Universe in 2010. It was, I think, like the second book that I did. And I talked about my relationship with the Fountain of Wisdom. That's when I started with it. The text doesn't want to help you. The text is antagonistic to those who investigate it. And as a result of, of probing it, you, you irritate the text. It sends up resistances. There's this weird push and pull that goes on with it. The Zohar is a text which is fundamentally neutral. It doesn't care whether you crack it or not. Lots of texts are like that. Fountain of Wisdom is saying, go away. I'll throw a rocket. <laughs> Fuck off. Dude, yeah. speaking of the Zohar, how crazy is it that the only reason we have an English translation of all 13 or whatever volumes is because of Madonna? Well, how can you say Daniel Matt uh, uh, is, uh, you know, was was uh, put on the job by Madonna? He was put, a very wealthy woman in Maryland uh, put him up to it. I mean, we do owe a slight debt to Rav Berg. No, I hate his translation. It's so me too. Clunky. It's so yeah. clunky. It's so clunky. But we wouldn't have the entire interlinear Hebrew, Aramaic, English translation of the Zahar without Rav Berg and Madonna's sure funding, we right? Sure we would. Sure we did. We had the Tishbi before Berg. We had the Tishbi In Berg. In English? Yeah. 
How do I not know that? How do I? How yeah. do, no, you see, the thing about Berg, Berg didn't even do the translation. He farmed it out to some yeshiva students. That makes sense. Yeah. Nah, he's that guy's a scammer. Uh, Gruberger. I see, learned Aramaic so I could read the Zohar. And I've, I study the Zohar. I read it in Aramaic. Like my Aramaic is solid. But I always thought that we owed a debt to, to Rav Berg and Madonna. And you're saying no? I am saying no. I'm saying um, Madonna is irrelevant and Berg is a scammer. And she's, his, she's our lucky star. <laughs> that's a generation after mine. I don't even know the reference, but you, <laughs> I can figure it out. But here, here's the main thing about the Zohar for me. The only books of the Zohar that have been meaningful to me are parts of the Raya Mahemna, the books of the Idrot, and the Sifra Ditzniuta. The Sifra Ditzniuta is really part of a different body of literature. Now, aside from the Idrot, Sifra Ditzniuta, and parts of the Raya Mahemna, you get a totally separate book called the Takuni Zohar. Takuni Zohar is way later. It's not a 13th century text, but it's amazing. Uh, the Takuni Zohar is like the key to the Zohar, you know, in a lot of ways. But if I was going to recommend any of it to anybody who looks at all this literature, you know, baffled by it, I'd say, don't read it linearly. Go right to the Sifra Ditzniuta and just work with those symbols because that's the root of the parts of theme. That's the root of the vocabulary, the images, and the way that they relate to each other. And there's also references to non-emanationism in it. Yeah, fuck emanationism. Yeah, the emanationist <laughs> agenda was always an add-on by people who had to make linear sense of something. I mean, to be honest, as a human being, to another human being, because I assume, for better or worse, you're a human being, right? <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> for the moment. I know. So I'm, I'm channeling my Jewish rabbi self right now. Um, for, like... I don't even know what to say. This is such an ecstatic conversation. Like, do you ever read Pearl Epstein? I I called her up once. I called her on the phone because no I read I read a book that she wanted, and she the first thing that she did was she started yelling at me for calling her by her married name, and she just gotten <laughs> divorced. Her married name was Besserman, I believe. And. I, I was told to read her in 97 by Rabbi Yonashin Gershom, who was the Hasidic rabbi that trained me in Vienna. I was 16 years old. So I got one of her books, right? And the reason I got one of her books is not because I really cared what she had to say. It's because she was a student of Kaplan. She was in that room in Kensington in his house. Jesus. And she was in the original teachings Dude. that were transcribed by uh, Avraham, um, Avraham, was it Avram Greenbaum or Avram Sutton? Avram Sutton, Avram Sutton. And Avram Sutton told me to read her, so I did. And I liked some of her ideas very much. So I just, I called information back then. This was before the internet. And I called yeah. her up and I said, hi, is this, is this Pearl Besserman? And she just started yelling at me. And, you know, oh, hey, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Hey. And we got into a really interesting conversation about Kaplan. And she told me basically the truth that you could read all of these books 
and it won't make any difference at all until you get a living human being who can do an actual direct transmission. And it doesn't even matter what system it is. And she was a, a person who said this to me, and I actually took her very, very seriously well, yeah. at exactly the right time, that it doesn't matter what kind of food you eat when you're starving in the desert. You're not starving in the desert and they offer you Chinese food and you say, no, sorry, I don't like Chinese food. Right. If you're starving and they offer you food, you fucking eat it. Fuck right. Yeah. So look for somebody who can do direct transmission and take their instruction, throw yourself at the, at the situation and take their instruction. And it wasn't very long after she said this to me that I met my teacher and was asked to do just that and resisted it and had a real hard time with it because in the West, we have this weird delusion that we can do it ourselves, that all we need is the right information. DIY baby, YouTube. Yeah, but it doesn't work. Of course That's not. That's the problem. Yeah. In Dude, this I was talking with so many people today already from, cause I get up around 5 a.m., 4 a.m. Um, who were talking, we're talking about self-initiation in the Golden Dawn system, right? Because Cicero wrote a book, and I finally got a chance in February last to talk with Cicero and his wife Tabby. Great, great people. Honestly, I always had a negative impression of them online and, and in their works. But when I actually met them, I was like, oh, I like these people. These are good people, right? And it's Chick Cicero, it's Tabitha Cicero, right? They're, they're legends, no matter who they are. But I, I got to talk to them, and I found out the whole self-initiation model was flawed because it was fabricated as a, as a means to publish a book that would sell, right? And there's a problem with self-initiation. Can I ask you humbly, person to person, what is the fundamental problem of self-initiation and why does transmission matter? The problem is conceptuality and grasping at the nature of self and identity and the positing of identification on conceptual structures. So if you think that you are a body mind with an identity, no matter how much you want to see beyond that wall, okay, you think you're a body mind with an identity, you conceptualize and reify your own identity, we call that ego, no matter how hard the ego tries to think of concepts beyond the ego, it can't do it. Like you said before, you don't know what you don't know. So everything in your habit field, every idea that you think internally, every sense perception that you think is fundamentally external to you, they're all judged by the point of view of identification with the body-mind that you can't unmake. So how could you initiate yourself in any kind of aspect of spiritual realization if the very mechanism that judges its phenomena has this fundamental flaw, which is in and of itself reductive, it takes a force outside of that system to come in and interfere with that system and crack it open until it ruptures. That's the only way that a, a tiny little fissure, a tiny little crack could start to form in the shell of the self-identified ecological body-mind. And based on that tiny little crack, maybe a transmission could get in if you're lucky. 
How the hell could somebody do that to themselves? It's impossible. I think a lot of people think it's about ego, you know, like there's, there's gotta be this ego involved in transmitting initiation, but it's more than that, right? It's more than that. There's an actual, what is an etheric link? What is it? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, confluence of two gestures one is the gesture of longing it rises up the other is the gesture of grace it pours down when the blazing up of longing meets the fluidity of the outpouring of grace you have the possibility of some spiritual realization and growth you could have the blazing up of longing and grace is withheld and that just produces more longing and more and more and more and ultimately maybe it will merit grace but longing doesn't control grace grace is beyond the control of anything that we could want or think or say or do grace shows up when it shows up we have no say in the matter grace doesn't come cheap there has to be an enormous longing and yearning and a tremendous fire and pressure to request humbly and sincerely and authentically for grace to show up. And when it does, if it does, we just have to be ready. And we meet the, the drops of grace that descend with the fire of longing. And in the coalescence of those drops, the fluidity and the blaze become something other than than those things it becomes something utterly incomprehensible uh, it, it becomes it becomes the the secret mercury the realization of the secret mercury yeah um the descent of grace is something that is usually only beckoned through devotion and prayer and enormous toil and effort and like i said it doesn't come cheap but when you're working with a vector of grace that's living, meaning an actual lineage with living teachers who are realized, and if you spend a lot of time around them, you know where you stand. See, that's why self-initiation doesn't work, because you will never know where you stand. At least if there's a real lineage that has real transmission to offer, they're either ignoring you or telling you you're a piece of shit, or loving you, or giving you something to work on, but whatever it is, they're communicating with you. There's a real relationship there. To pray for grace that doesn't come, you know, you're like the farmer out in the field. I wish it would rain. My crops are drying up. Come on, come on, come on. And then the rain doesn't come, right? Like to be in that position, self-initiation is like, Oklahoma Dust Bowl at that point. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. So when you're, uh, grace is the key to the whole thing and it's beyond your control. This is why Thelema ultimately doesn't work. You can't will it to happen. Because let's face it, the true will of Thelema is just the ego in disguise. Is it because let me let me uh, I'm I'm so not Thelemite, but I, I like I'm interviewing Georgina Rose soon. She's a Gen Zer, Gen Z. That's like, she's a young girl, 
and people have uh, chastised her to me many times, but I'm always tentative. Uh, like I was a youth minister for years and proud of it because I, I, for some reason, for some crazy reason, I think it's valuable not to write off the generations younger than us. I don't know why, why I would be so kind to uh, the younger generations. Who knows why? Maybe it's because they're our future. I don't know. But um, young people are going to get involved with Aleister Crowley, with Golden Dawn, with all these other mystical traditions. That, Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And they're going to be on the same journey that you and I were on our whole lives. So we can poo-poo them or we can say, how can we help, right? I'm not poo-pooing anybody. I'm just saying that the true will is bullshit. Okay, why is the true will bullshit? Because in order to posit a will, you have one of three things. There's either the will of an individual, right? The person, the will of the divine, God's will, or the will of some cosmic force in general, the will of the cosmos, right? So will can either be cosmic creative dynamism or a theistic imputation of ratzon in Hebrew, right? That's or right. or um, a person's longing. Those are the three options. There's really no other, there's no fourth option. And all of those things are inherently open. All of those are inherently is subsumed into the unknowable. So to say that a trajectory somehow marks the absolute, that's something beyond the, the intellect's capacity to grasp and understand. It's literally incomprehensible. It cannot be comprehended. So any discussion of will is, is de facto reductive. Now, in Kabbalah, they uh, attribute the will, the, the ultimate divine ratzon, to Keter. Well, we as mystics are not interested in Keter. We're only interested in Ensof. So we, we've, already we've already hopped over that problem by simply disregarding it. We just do our practice. We just simply love the divine. Amen. I mean, it keeps coming down to that simple point, doesn't it? that yeah. we need to yeah i mean it does okay so i mean <laughs> we're encroaching on three hours which is amazing and i appreciate your time you know hey, there's your do... long form that you wanted oh brother uh i did this uh interview with uh thomas hatsis who's a famous psychedelic historian and he told me that he had from uh 11 a.m till 1 p.m free so i was like oh great two hours that'll be good and we talked for two hours and at the end i was he was like i gotta go and i said well you said you had from 11 till till 1 p.m he's like i meant i had an hour between 11 and 1 p.m and we laughed and we joked because it had been two hours and he only intended on one hour the podcast in its final form because we kept talking was four hours and 15 minutes yeah. So there's something going on in the human species. I just want to say there's something going on in the human species that wants depth. It wants to hear people keep talking because, you know, you can talk to a famous author like yourself for a couple hours and people know it's like we've intuitively know that in an hour or two, each person has a list of things that they want to say and that when it goes over that two hour point, 
it's almost like we feel, we know that those two people after two hours are just going to start saying stuff that they normally wouldn't say. And that's oh, yeah. people perk oh, it up. Happened, it happened people. several times already. It has happened. It's true Kabbalah, true mouth to ear. So ask me anything you want now. Anything ask you anything. You okay, can, can, let me try an experiment. Hold on. I'm gonna... You there? Are you there? Yeah. Okay, I'm trying an experiment. We're, 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 we're bouncing from the recording. We're bouncing into actual pure live here. So part of what we're saying is live now. But before people actually join on and see what we're saying, can I ask you, when we do a follow-up on this, when your new book comes out, um, what is the chances of getting a signed copy of your new book to one of our listeners? Well, I'm going to be going back out to the Hermitage for a while. I'm, I'm finishing up the production on the book and then it's off to the printer and I'll be away. So I won't be here to sign anything for a long time. And that's a question that you got to ask me when I come back because uh, I'm here until we finish up the proofing of the book and getting everything because I proof the hell out of the book. I actually proof it. People generally don't do that because of the artwork. Um, so I get proofs, actual pages of the book that will look exactly like the book's going to look. And I adjust uh, whatever needs adjustment in the offset litho process. My printer works with me. And then I'm gone. Then I'm back, you know, living in a hut and not having the internet or talking to people for a few months. And in at that point, I generally don't like to sign books generally for the same reason that I don't like to put fancy leather covers on my books because I don't want people getting precious about it. I want people writing in the margins and cracking the spine and digging in and carrying it with them. I don't want people to get precious about this stuff like it's some, you know, uh, uh, artifact from a reliquary or something to put it on a shelf and you know stare at the shelf <laughs> we all we all love the nephilim press stuff but um your book uh the one 32 keys that you have recommended as the first to read of yours it it is 90 dollars to buy on amazon yeah don't get it from amazon <laughs> get it from my wife <laughs> she runs the website I mean, it costs a lot to produce these books because they're amazing uh, books. I'm, I'm getting, um, I'm using this um, Mohawk options paper. It's really beautiful paper. And, you know, we proof the hell out of it. And I look at the plates and I adjust the plates. People don't realize how much it actually costs me to make it look like this. I could do it cheap, but it would Oh, we like know crap. exactly how much it costs to make these masterpieces that you make, brother. We know. I did a series of books with a commercial publisher. It was Inner Traditions Press. That's uh, who Thomas Hatzis, who I was just referring to, worked with. Yeah, I, they did the second edition of my book, Kabbalistic Mirror of Genesis. And they did a book of mine called The Awakening Ground. Both came out horrible because of the materials and, and the printing. And they just, it just doesn't look good. I mean, I... Uh, when you put it out commercially with no care and as cheaply as possible, sure, it's going to be inexpensive and people can get the information. And I guess that's good, 
but when you want the images to look right, and that's kind of what we're talking about here is the tonality in my diagrams. Your diagrams I, are out of this world. Well, I work black and white. And the thing about working in black and white in grayscale is that people think that it's easy and it's color that's hard, but my printer understands it's far harder to adjust a grayscale image properly when there's complex tonalities than it is to do color. Colors actually got a margin of error because you could get it wrong and it still looks good in various ways. Yeah, it's colorful. You could, yeah, you could, you could get it to look good fairly quickly, but with grayscale images, either they're dead on or they're just not working. And you got to go over it and over it and over it to get it to the point where it's dialed in, where it's totally dialed in. And once you get it there, you don't touch it. So you got to do a lot of proofing in the litho process. Uh, but your listeners probably aren't interested in that kind of stuff. My listeners are a bunch of crazy motherfuckers. They're, 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 they're the elite. They're the elite. They, they, they don't know it yet, but they are. Um, the real question I have for you, besides whether or not we can get you to give a signed book giveaway when we do the follow-up podcast to this, because, I mean, you're David Heim Smith. You're, you're a fucking living legend, let's face I it. I am? You are. You are David Heim Smith. And I, I know I'm David Heim Smith, but legend? You're, you're a living legend, and if people don't realize that David Heim Smith is a living legend, then, then they need to go, you know, to D.C. and rally for Trump. <laughs> and, and you're located in Canada, you said? Vancouver, British Columbia. Is yeah. there a large esoteric community there? Yeah, there's me and two other people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's pretty big. But no, um, so you're, you've got two books coming out on this ancient 13th century Kabbalistic manuscript, which is mind-blowing. Well, one gonna, book on that and another book as well. Yeah, oh. and I'm going to look at the Aramaic for next time because I want to bring to you, when we do the follow-up to this epic podcast, I want to do, I want to actually come to you with some textual issues because like, Honestly, I didn't spend years of my life studying biblical Aramaic and Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, so that I could not pay attention to these things. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to look at some stuff, and I'm mainly going to look at some words and some sentences that might pretend to praxis. And I mean that technically. All right. Well, let me ask you a question on that level right now. Yeah, what is the word that you choose for the color green? in Aramaic? I don't know. Have you ever heard the word Yarok? Yes. And do you accept that word as being the color green? No. See, this is the problem. Yarok is usually translated as the color green, but it can also seemingly mean a variety of other colors. Yeah. That's the problem with Hebrew semantics, like the word hesed, or, or any, so many words in Hebrew and Aramaic, they don't have the lexical qualities that people usually ascribe to them in translation. That's the problem with Hebrew and Aramaic. So what are the colors that you attribute to Yarok? Oh, God, like a turquoise more. Interesting. Like, Interesting. like that color of the ocean when it's close to the land. 
Like I heard that said once. Interesting. I don't think this is going to interest my listeners much. Their their interest in Aramaic and Hebrew is limited. But my interest in how Hebrew and Aramaic translations of 13th century Kabbalistic texts affects our spiritual practice, that's what I'm interested in. Okay, let me say something about that that I think your listeners will like. The basic paradigm of the fountain of wisdom can be elucidated pretty quickly. Um, hold on, let me let me get a copy of the fountain of wisdom and look at it for a second. And I'll tell you something interesting about it. Um, tell me about it. All right. Alchemically, what happens with the contemplation of any phenomena is it arises, it is perceived, right? Then you have one of two choices. Either you react in a reflex manner habitually to the phenomena that arises, and it becomes part of the habit field where all the other little fragmented bits and random chaotic parts that factor into this rather shallow version of time and space that you apprehend and self-identify within um, becomes your world and uh, you accept it, or you choose to penetrate and immerse and go further than that superficial understanding. That immersion involves a technique that the text mentions but doesn't elucidate. And what alchemy teaches us is that that immersion is a process called subliming. Subliming is a process that is defined in a chemical sense by taking a substance and heating it until it becomes a vapor. And then that vapor reconstitutes in some purified form. That's essentially what the fountain of wisdom is teaching us to do in contemplation where phenomena arises in the habit field, that's our substance. We heat it with the fire and the pressure of contemplation. And we've spoken earlier about the types of fire that we're talking about here. Fire from the intellect, fire from feeling tone, fire from textural patterning within silence, and then the luminosity of that silence, and then the openness of luminosity, right? Like we said before. All of that takes place within the Ruach, right? Within the spherot of the Ruach, where qualities are felt and understood. So when the habit field is sublimed by fire and turns into a vapor, what we're talking about is entering into perception, which starts by perceiving and knowing that you're perceiving. I am thinking about the fact I am thinking. I am feeling the fact that I am feeling, right? You enter into a participatory way with your, the motion of your own ruach, which becomes the motion of that which you're perceiving. So it's not just the motion of that which perceives. It's the motion of that which is perceived. And once you penetrate that wall between automatic, habitual, mechanical reactions and going inside the motion of your own perception in the vapor of the ruach after it has been heated, that which knows and that which is known, awareness and appearance, start to merge. 
And in that merging, the blazing up and the dripping down that we've been talking about, that's where it happens. It happens in the Ruach. And it's brought up to the point of Dot. And ultimately, Dot is released into Keter. And it dissolves ultimately into that which subsumes it. Because Dot is a subset of Keter anyway. So yeah. immersion into openness through the process of subliming will recrystallize or reconstitute itself. Remember, substance is heated until it becomes a vapor, and then that vapor reconstitutes in purified form. Well, what's the purified form? The purified form is what we call pure vision. It's a new understanding of the world with profound meaning instead of stupid, random, habitual, mechanical lack of meaning. So ultimately, this process of subliming encompasses the entire path and immersion into the bath, the bath of the divine is where the subliming takes place. So everything that I'm talking about in both of these new books and the whole of the Fountain of Wisdom, the 13th century texts have to do with this methodology. And to understand subliming is the way to enact the view. First, you struggle to understand what I mean by a non-emanationist view. And then you bring it to bear in the act of contemplative subliming. That's the best way I could explain that to you. No, no, that makes sense to me. Um, we've been, we're over three hours now on this, which is epic. Um, I have so many questions I want to talk to you about next time, including reincarnation. Uh, I check the yes box on that. Oh, no, don't check the yes box, bro. No, okay, no. What that means is we're going to have a great talk. with. But let me give you the caveat first. The caveat okay. is what is it that reincarnates? It's certainly not your mind. Right? It's certainly not your body. That's gone. It's eaten by worms. But your mind, that which knows itself to be you, is gone. That's not what reincarnates. Okay. What reincarnates is something that you absolutely would not identify as yourself. Okay. It's an axiomatical configuration. It's a pattern. The leapfrogging. It's the neshama. But the neshama is not the ruach. I mean, the, the neshama doesn't know itself as itself. It doesn't walk around and talk and say, this is me. You want to hear, uh, before we wrap up here, because um, we have to, because I have to go pee. Um, yes, I also have to call my, <laughs> um, my lovely assistant and... Uh, <laughs> I got to get back to work. Yeah, well, this is work, brother. Dude, I, 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 I started this podcast April 1st. Get it? April 1st. Yeah, April Fool's. Yeah. It was a shit show joke. And from April 1st to now, it's spawned, and I mean spawned, to over 6,000 listeners a month. Like, nice. it, like I dropped an episode yesterday on the Assyrian tree of life as it led to the Kabbalistic and it's already been listened to for over 900 hours. Like the idea that I can talk for an hour about some obscure Assyrian tree of life for an hour and that within 36 hours, 
like thousands of hours of it's it's stupid it's crazy the internet the newosphere i like to think of it as tr deschardin's newosphere because you know what that prophecy was fucking right there's a network of consciousness that spans the globe now that we're all in touch with and transcends the mortal coil it really does in some weird ass way so you know what i mean well, here's an interesting tidbit about the fountain of wisdom. There are no spherote in the fountain of wisdom. There's no tree. Imagine a Kabbalistic text that doesn't mention the tree or the spherote. Everyone always thought that Ramon Lull had no connection with the Kabbalah. You know, you're aware of that, right? Well, he had a tangential one. He probably, you know, uh, you got to remember the cauldron of... Um, interpermeation of systems that happened at that time you know scholars would talk to each other but moshe adele proved that he actually had correspondence with a hasidic a jewish rabbi Kabbalah. yeah well look at the diagrams look at the diagrams from from his work it's obviously so he, proto, he didn't proto kabbalistic he didn't call them sephirot but no but he it doesn't the, the the methodology had that sort of um feeling of the histalshalus of the of the ladder of creation about it yeah yeah and even if he used his own terminology it was obviously a series of steps and stages that um was the, all judeo-christian steps and stages ultimately have a common source because that's how the material functions that's how the symbol system functions even even the the exoteric bible functions that way it, it really, it really does. And I would like to talk to you about Bible stuff more next time as well, especially since of my, because of my background. Um, now, you might want to check out that first book of mine, Kabbalistic Mirror of Genesis, where I run down the Eden scenario, you might like that. Okay, I will, I will go buy that book. But I'm going to promote under this episode, um, your 32 keys book. I'm going to promote it with a link. It costs 90 something dollars. Oh, no, no. Don't don't buy it from Amazon. No, don't buy it. No, buy it from my website. It's cheaper. And um, it's, how, much it's it? how much is it from my website? I, I don't know because I don't run my website or sell the books. My wife does all that. Um, but it's a book and a a deck of cards and the cards are for contemplation yeah. and i it's a it's a masterpiece it's a fucking masterpiece do you have it no no i've seen it in my physical presence like jesse showed it to me fratter c showed it to me like yeah, I yeah definitely don't get any of my books from amazon because buy them from your website yeah they're in an inflated price um the other way that you could get my books other than for me is from jd holmes that's another place JD to get holmes. it so yeah. i want to do a giveaway when we do a follow-up to this and i want to do a giveaway of your new book but signed by you and i'm going to make a big promotion and run ads for it is that something we can do sure why not because we're live right now people are we're live streaming on instagram right now people are commenting and sending tons of there's explosions of hearts send some hearts people send some hearts yeah definitely i have i didn't know you were talking about a giveaway for a promo thing with signed because okay. generally i don't like to sign books when i sell them right and part of the reason is because i'm very often not even here heart. to the hearts yeah. okay 
yeah i i i'm not i'm i'm a fucking gen xer so i'm not like hip with all this millennial gen z shit but it's sort of fun oh the hearts are blowing up oh my god they're blowing up the hearts yeah hey hey i'm even more removed i'm a baby boomer you're a baby boomer motherfucker yes i am i I was i was born in the last year of the baby boom 1964 dude i wish you could see what i'm seeing right now they are blowing up the hearts it's great Oh, my God, you crazy motherfuckers. I was born um, literally two months after the assassination of uh, JFK. Well, he deserved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but that's a real boomer, you know, Um, you know. um, I could tell you stories, but that's another. We're going to do a follow up. This this was meant to be a 30 minute preamble to a a full length podcast, but this has ended up being a three hour and 15 minute podcast with David Heim Smith. So I'm going to release this today before I do an epic thing tonight. And we're going to follow release it, release the whole damn thing. And for all you platonic, neoplatonic emanationist motherfuckers out there, we invite you to explore the ecstatic realms beyond all that you have conceived or will conceive and consider the fact that what you know is nothing since what all of us know is nothing. And what's the main point of all of our spiritual practices? My brother, David, what is the primary end all and be all of all spiritual practice? Realization of the divine. That's all. Realization of the divine. Realization means making real the direct apprehension, unmitigated by conceptuality, unmitigated by the intellect and its ideas and feeling sensations or any personal process that cultivates and crafts an experience. Direct immersion and realization of the divine in itself outside of any reduction to personal circumstances or considerations. Man, it has been such a delight to talk with you. I have to be continued, right? Like, what else can we say? I have to go okay. pizza bad. I would love to talk more. We're not going to pause this, though. We're going to end this, right? And we're going to continue this. I'm going to send you my book, The Ethics of Understanding God, which is my uh, negative theological take on apophasis as it relates to the post-structuralist views of uh, Slavo Žižek and Hans-Gerd Gadamer. I'm going to have that sent to you ASAP by Amazon. Um, But folks, if you want to buy David Heimsmith's books, don't go to Amazon, even though I will link Amazon below. No, go to my website. Go Go to to his website. They're cheaper. Oh, and I should mention something else, sir. Um, I have a special website just for that book. And the, really? and you could Google it, 32keys, uh, whatever, .com. The reason why I have a special website for that book is because I have been doing oral teachings, because ultimately it's an oral tradition, via Zoom. And these Zoom classes are recorded. So you could watch teachings beyond the written material in the book on each of the 32 keys that are over an hour long. And I'm going to have 32 oral teachings on the 32 keys as 32 videos. I put one up on YouTube, just go into YouTube and um, uh, put in lightning flash of Aleph, which is uh, the general heading of the series of books that I'm doing. 
um, and you will see it. I have one for free, one of these teachings. I'm on key 12 now. So I only have 12 videos up, but I will have 32. And the Zoom material is edited with extra graphics and cleaned up a little bit. So you get the key image and a little box with me talking, sitting here in my chair, and then occasionally another diagram popping in and out. And that is a very interesting thing because that allows me to take the material back into the oral tradition, which is where it belongs. So you read the book, you do the exercises, and you can actually get teachings on what you're doing to expand it. So I have a whole website just for this that my wife set up. My wife's a genius with this stuff. I'm, I think if you weren't married to a genius, that would be a shame. Oh, she takes care of me. She's what, what you call a pujari, which is somebody who takes care of a retreatant. And because I am not 100% able to take care of myself. I'd probably be living under a bridge. And the <laughs> thing about my wife is that she keeps me in retreat. She takes care of my needs and um, takes care of the business stuff and the books and all that. So I could just, you know, practice, and do my, my work and my practice. Yes. Well, so next time we will do a follow-up in a, a week or two and we'll talk about, um, we'll talk about, uh, Jesus, what will we talk about? We're going to talk about reincarnation because I don't believe in it, even though the Hasidic rabbi who trained me in Kabbalah in 97 in Vienna did believe in it and made his whole life around Holocaust survivors reincarnated in the bodies of Californians. Okay, and but there's only one way you're going to find out now, isn't there? What's that? Well, you're going to have to physically die. But all the psychics my mom took me to as a kid when I was a young indigo child in the eighties said that this was my last lifetime and there was none others. Only one way to find out. I will have to die, but we'll talk more about reincarnation, DMT, golden dawn ritual work, pure Kabbalah and he Hebraic translation issues. Cause I'm going to bring to you translation issues. I find with the fountain of wisdom, the Sefer Ha Mayim Chokmah, I'm going to bring to you issues as I see they pertain to the spiritual practice praxis we are both familiar with. That's what I really want to do. Now that I know what you're all about, I want to actually use my Hebrew and Aramaic knowledge to look at those problematic issues and see if we can elucidate together or if you can teach me things that I have not foreseen linguistically. And I think yeah, you can. I'm sure problem. you can. But I want to get into some highly technical stuff that someone with pure rabbinical Kabbalistic knowledge couldn't answer me unless they also knew what you know and had also been familiar with the Thelemic OTO and GD traditions, not to mention the Boda and Paul Foster case stuff, which you are adept in. So that's something I want to actually go to town on you with. Yeah, but keep I in mind that I am- Aesthetics. Yeah, I, I am not aesthetics a- And diagrammatics. Right. But keep in mind, I am not a scholar and I don't even read Hebrew. I'm yeah, an ignoramus. I'm just a guy who does practice. You know, that's I, where I got you covered, bro. That's where right. I'm, I'll be. I'll, I'll apply my over overpriced education to that shit. You'll apply your 
mystical depth of wisdom to it. And together we will bullshit our way to some insights Kabbalistically. Well, the thing is that the fountain of wisdom, all you need to do is try one page, try the first page and you'll know where you stand. It is probably the most difficult book in the entire canon of Kabbalistic texts. I would say unreservedly, it's the most difficult Kabbalistic text there is. It is more opaque than anything else I can think of, certainly more opaque than the Zohar. Just try one page and you'll know where you stand. Before we talk next, when we do the follow-up, because this is just, this is a short 15 minutes slash three, four hour preamble to that. We're going to discuss the deep Kabbalistic problematics, DMT issues, as well as reincarnation. And it would be great to talk to you with about aliens next time. Yeah? Well, uh, on the subject of DMT, uh, it uh, DMT experiences will be reified. You will make experiences out of them, which means that you can pretty much disregard them as mysticism. So I think DMT is mm, interesting as showing you what's possible, but ultimately I think it's a waste of time as all psychedelics are. Um, as far as aliens are concerned, um, bring one on the show or introduce one to me and then we'll talk until that point. I have I nothing to it. say on aliens. I love it. Your views are so parallel to my own. I, uh, I can't, can we end with a little bit of poetry for aesthetic value? Sure. You want me to read no. some of, uh, you want me to read something? Cause I got one for you right here. Do it. Okay. Let me just move. Uh, you're hearing me, right? I'm hearing you loud and clear. Okay, because I'm moving the screen and I'm trying to, okay, I did it successfully. You're still hearing me, right? Loud and clear, brother. Okay, I'm going to read a section from the forthcoming book of mine called Quintessence of Secret Mercury, which is a visionary text. What's that? Here with David Heimsmith. I'm speaking this because we're live streaming loud right now. Okay. Uh, this text called Quintessence of Secret Mercury, I've been working on for about 10 years. And the text itself has gone through a lot of changes and has really evolved. And I'll just read you a portion of it. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Worlds and souls are all belly ma. That means without substance. A lightning flash shot through an open nowhere. Mind is space-like and space is mind-like. Beyond this is a mystery that words cannot touch, passing where no mind goes. The skins of mind are shed as the nachash stands and becomes a flaming sword. The swords cut through heaven and earth and becomes a flaming arrow through the bright. The bright is realized as pure darkness. The arrow never hits a target. Although innumerable targets arise, none can stop it. Expanse pervades each target like sunlight breaking through the morning mist, and through dissolution, the arrow becomes the flight. The serpent's oscillations weave the changeless continuum into the appearance of discontinuous change. When penetrated by the blaze of sword and arrow, appearing becomes translucent and clear, existentially transparent. The expanse is the blaze and the blaze is the expanse. It is that which cuts and what is cut through, the ontic solvent and the force of assertion, 
both what realizes and what is realized. That's from the Quintessence of Secret Mercury, coming out in the late spring. David Heimsmith, this has been an honor. Thank you Thanks. so much for talking with me. I'm going to honor your words with some other words. I'm going to honor them with seven short lines. Such fullness in the quarter overflows and falls into the basin of the mind that man is stricken, deaf and dumb and blind for intellect no longer knows is from the ought or knower from the known. That is to say, ascends to heaven. Only the dead can be forgiven. But when I think of that, my tongue's a stone. Ooh, who's that? William Butler Yeats. And that's you, from the poem that you, you and I are gonna, dead? You think only the dead can be forgiven? Only the dead can be forgiven. Why? I don't know, but that's the poem. That's from Dialogue of Self and Soul, which you and me are going to memorize and recite together. You're going to do the soul, which is that, that, that was from the soul, and I'm going to do the self. And we'll do that at the next podcast in a follow-up in a few weeks, okay? Well, uh, we can certainly explore the issue, but why is it that the dead can be redeemed and only the dead can be redeemed? I can't wait to talk about it, brother. I can't wait. I fucking can't wait. Okay, because I could come up with a few reasons why I think so. Right? Damn right. Okay. I have to pee like a racehorse, so I love All right. you. You're amazing, and let's, let's to be continued, man. Okay, do me a favor, and when you put this up as a podcast, send me a link. It'll be up within the hour. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Shalom. Okay. Bye. Bokarov. Whoa. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk